Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The year is 1990. And as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a podcaster. The movie? Goodfellas. everybody and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where every week we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 list of greatest films of all time to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up and how have they influenced the films that we watch today? Uh, today we'll be talking about uh, the Martin Scorsese film Goodfellas. Um, but last week we talked about a silent film classic, uh, Intolerance. And, uh, I really want to get into this with you, Amy, because people love this movie. But before we get into even that, I want to remind everybody that next week we are doing another live unspooled on YouTube uh, for the film. And Amy, I'll let you announce it. What movie are we going to do next week? I'll give you a hint, or should I say I'll give you a clue. We're doing Ooh. Clue. <laughs> I am so excited. We are doing Clue on Spooled Party. Um, and that is, of course, 8.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time. 5.30 p.m. Pacific time. You can watch it live for free uh, on YouTube on the Earwolf channel. I'm so, so excited we're going to do that movie. And who knows? Maybe there will be a murder. <gasps> but before then, let's talk about intolerance. I, I want to start actually by reading a comment from Jason Vivone because he wrote something I really loved. He said, you know what? Thank you for the Todd Browning mention. We mentioned that Todd Browning, the director who would go on to do Freaks, uh, helped write the movie. He said, says Jason, he has also made Marsh's Driver in the 1915 segment, which I did not appreciate, and that a year before, he had been in a notorious car wreck that killed a man. So Jason believes that Griffith may have been drawing on that scandal by casting Todd as the driver. Oh, Ooh. interesting. Have you seen Freaks, Paul? You know, I feel like I watched it one late night in high school, but... Uh, I don't really remember it that much at all. And it kind of makes me nervous to even think about watching it. Is it oh, too weird? It holds up. I really love that movie. Okay. I got to watch that. Um, 
I actually love this comment because it brought intolerance into the now. Um, you know, we talked about how big this film was and how it didn't really do that well at the box office. And uh, J.B. Dahl at Trying to Let It Go writes, remember those Academy Award voters who whined about not being able to keep up with the two timelines in uh, Greta Gerwig's Little Women? Imagine them trying to follow intolerance. And I, it actually made me think, I was like, oh, I wonder if this movie, while a technical marvel, was just too complex for the time. That's why this movie was not a hit. It was like, what am I, it, it is a contemporary of now, but not a, you know, it was kind of probably unwatchable to a certain degree back then. I can see that. I mean, I do feel like we tend to be a little resistant to films and filmmakers that we think are trying to outsmart us. You know, it, yeah. we like, we're like, oh, look at you, Mr. Smarty Pants, trying to make your smarty smart movie, blah, 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 blah. And, and I wonder if they almost thought he was putting on airs and that it made them resistant to him because it does feel like whatever their emotion was to intolerance, it spilled over to the rest of his career because he was never able to make anything that audiences appreciated as much as they appreciated Birth of a Nation, which I think is yeah. the film that he was hoping would be his stepping stone to making bigger stuff, which is blah, 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 blah. But I mean, that- well, he... He definitely used Birth of a Nation to make a bigger movie. I mean, it's I, I, like like Lewis Camera wrote, like it, it's this filmmaker's insane. It's whether he's craning up to show you the massive set or having his actress bite a goat in the ear. He's creating a moment. It's, it's very Hollywood. It's big, ambitious, heavy handed, meticulously made and overhyped. And I kind of think like he took his shot. Like he like he may not have made another one, but he definitely outdid himself after Birth of a Nation. I mean, that's the way to go out. And And kind of I would argue similar to the film we'll be talking about today, which is like you have Scorsese coming off of Last Temptation of Christ, which is a movie that is incredibly controversial. And and is this the end of Scorsese's career? And he goes and makes Goodfellas, not like, like, like not as a last ditch effort, but kind of going back to something that he's familiar with, but really blowing it out and making it the way he wants because who knew if that was going to be his last film? And I think Scorsese kind of lived a whole career in making these movies where it's like, this could be the last one. And I love that energy of like, well, I'm not going to play it safe. That's a fair point. And I really like Last Temptation. I almost wish we were getting a chance to talk about that on this whole show. Mm. But um, <laughs> there was a comment I really liked from Ludovic Martin at Le Kurosawa. And he said, you know, pretty much every weekend on Spooled, you mentioned Ben-Hur. Are you mm. really sure you want it off the list? I mean, the show would miss an important reference point without it. What other movie on the list have you guys talked about in as many episodes? It's so funny. I think Ben-Hur just exists in my head because it was like one of, it was the second episode that we did. And, you know, it just felt like such a bloated epic that didn't feel like it had so much weight behind it. But yeah, I mean, I think it's been a funny reference point. And it it kind of encapsulates a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, um, where there are other films in this list. And I can just look at Titanic and Intolerance as two that are similarly big and bloated, but also uh, really fun, really fun and engaging films. I think that that, that one's on there because of the chariot race, honestly. But I mean, like, yeah, I would still want to talk shit on it. So let's keep it on the list. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, that's a good segue for our call in that we had this week, which is we asked you, the listeners, what would you take off the list? Should we hear what people said? Yeah, let's do it. Hi, Amy and Paul. I would take High Noon off the list. The story of its conception as a blacklist allegory is much more interesting than the movie itself. I'm going to be so crucified for this, but the movie I would be more than happy to kick off is 2001 A Space Odyssey. 
I was so horrified by the sound design and lack of any emotional levity, it made me never want to watch another movie again, which is honestly the worst feeling in the world for a cinephile. I would kick off all the president's men. Probably Tootsie. I don't understand why Tootsie's on this list. Like, it's an okay movie. It's got its charms, but the whole thing just feels... Like, I don't understand why it's one of the top 100. The movie that I would have to kick off that list is The Wild Bunch. Y'all did a really great job of making me appreciate what it did to film. But at the end of the day, the way that movie treated women, uh, Mexican women specifically, which is what my heritage is, it was just too personally offensive. I would kick off Raging Bull because we need to make room for Scorsese's third best movie, The Wolf of Wall Street. If I could... Not just remove it from the list, but from all human existence, I would dispose of bringing up Baby. The most nauseating movie I've had to watch on this list. Yeah, I get Titanic off that list. Bloated, hackneyed love story. Incidentally, Goodfellas is my favorite movie. Oh, wow, Amy, someone coming after you with that Titanic call. I mean, I guess I have found the anti-matter to my matter. I guess if that listener and I <laughs> ever sat next to each other at a movie theater, um, the movie theater would explode. But by the way, oh, I, no. I, I love I love the the anger here. Like I, someone agreed with me about High Noon, but then this the anger of like, I would dispose of bringing up Baby, the most nauseating film. It's like, really? I didn't realize people would have to be that angry about that. I mean, so many people called in and had so many very interesting picks. You know what? This is good framing, because since I'm a person who wants to kick Goodfellas off the list, we can all listen to everybody's opinions and disagree with them. But hey, we're friends here, right? Are we friends here? Yes, but it also shows the subjective nature of movies. We don't have to all agree. And I think that one of the fun things about this list and going through it and and as we continue this show, kind of seeing what we would even add to the most perfect list, it's never going to be perfect because we are not one person with one set of likes and dislikes. Oh, well, and that, with that being said, let's you and I get into it as we tackle the 1990 Martin Scorsese Mafia, I mean, epic. Is it an epic? I don't know. Hit. Uh, Goodfellas. So, Amy, let's bang, bang on Spool It. What do you mean I'm funny? It's 1990, and Time Magazine's Man of the Year is George H.W. Bush, the oldest website on the internet now known as IMDb, began on Usenet as a list of actresses with beautiful eyes. The First Lady Barbara Bush apologizes for calling The Simpsons the dumbest thing I've ever seen after Marge Simpson wrote her a letter asking her not to be so judgmental. Disabled activists got out of their wheelchairs and crawled up the steps of the Capitol to encourage senators to vote on the Americans with Disabilities Act. It worked, and the act was signed into law by President Bush. And... McDonald's stops cooking their fries in beef fat and begins using vegetable oil. Hot movies include Home Alone, Ghost, Dances with Wolves, Pretty Woman, House Party, and today's topic, Goodfellas. It comes in at number 92 on the AFI's Top 100 list in 2007, up two points from its rank at number 94 in the previous list. Amy, let's listen to a clip. In prison... Dinner was always a big thing. We had a pasta course, and then we had a meat or a fish. Paulie did the prep work. He was doing a year for contempt, and he had this wonderful system for doing the garlic. He used a razor 
and he used to slice it so thin that it used to liquefy in the pan with just a little oil. It's a very good system. Vinny was in charge of the tomato sauce. Wow, got the smoke. Got <laughs> three the kinds of meat in the meatballs. You've got the uh, veal, beef, and pork. Ah, good, but you gotta have the pork. Pork oh, is all that's, that's the flavor. I felt he used too many onions, but it was still a very good sauce. Vinny, don't put too many onions in the sauce. I didn't put too much onions in it at all. Three small onions, that's all I did. All right, Amy, uh, who's in it? What's it about? Goodfellas, it is directed by Martin Scorsese. It is his comeback film after The Last Temptation of Christ started a lot of riots and fights. It is written by Nicholas Pileggi based on his book Wise Guys, which is the story as told to him of Henry Hill, a uh, Irish-Italian mobster, the friends he knew, the enemies he made, and how he wound up ratting everybody out and becoming a jailbird. Uh, Henry Hill is played by Ray Liotta. You also have Robert De Niro as the Irish gangster James Jimmy Conway. Joe Pesci as Tommy DeVito, who ends up winning the Best Sporting Oscar for this. And uh, some of my favorites in here, you got Lorraine Bracco as Karen Hill, who is Henry Hill's wife, and Paul Sorvino as the head mobster, Paul Cicero. So, Amy, I know that you have an opinion about this movie. And I went in uh, kind of being open to being swayed because I had heard you on the canon, the show that you did before you and I started doing this, and you had... Some really good points. And we'll get into those points here, I'm sure, today. But I have to say that I went in with very low expectations going like, you know what? This is going to be one of those movies that I loved when I was a kid. And I'm going to see all the flaws in as an adult. And guess what? I was totally wrong. This movie slaps, Amy. It <laughs> slaps. Uh, I, I watched this movie last night. Um, I had to watch something else. And it was kind of later in the evening, and I was like, I'm going to fall asleep. I know it. I was riveted to the screen, totally immersed, loved, loved this movie more than I think I've ever loved it in the past. That's where I come in on this movie. I just was like, this is genius. It's so well done. Um, but to uh, to be my counterpoint here, how was your rewatch? <laughs> Uh, well, I want to say right up at the top, I'm glad for you. I'm glad. I'm glad. And for all the people at home who love Goodfellas, I'm glad that you love it. Love is great. Love is great. Love can go in any direction. I don't love this film. I'll talk about why I don't love this film. But I'm glad you have Paul here as a conduit speaking up for why this movie is lovable because I know this movie is beloved. When we have been doing the polls about which Scorsese should stay on throughout throughout this whole time we've been doing the show, Goodfellas is always right up there, which is surprising that it's ranked in the low 90s here on the AFI list. And yes, I will say, I do think it should be off this list. Um, but love, there's a lot of things. We can love a lot of things that aren't on this list or dislike things and think they shouldn't be on this list. And, you know, uh, can we just have a big uh, bowl of meatballs together right at the beginning? Cheers some Chianti. <laughs> I hope this doesn't wind up in bloodshed. Of course. I'm not here to fight with you about this movie. I'm here to discuss it. And I think that the thing that really jumps out at me about this film, and this is really what I wanted to talk to you about at first, was this seems to be all the best elements of Scorsese perfectly packaged, right? You have amazing actors. You have these great character actors. You have this beautiful uh, music, you know, accompanying the whole film, like great uh, soundtrack. The film is gorgeous. The tracking shots, the, the design, like it just feels like every element of a Scorsese film is firing on 
full thrusters here. That's that's how I feel like. Sometimes I'll watch a Scorsese and I'll be like, oh, I really like that or this, but I didn't love it as a full thing. Or, you know, I'll go back and forth. But this one really feels like it's, or maybe this is what's burnt into my brain as being the perfect Scorsese film. So I'm judging everything against this. I mean, that makes sense. Like we have a lot of mafia films on this list. And this one has a freshness. Like you feel the director behind the camera being like, freeze it there. Okay, let it go. Come on, freeze frame. Here we go. Ba-da-da, da-da-da. Here's a real badass song. I'm putting it on the radio. Like this movie has a juice to it. I-, I can see why you like it on that behalf. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, I'll start with my biggest quibble. This film is profoundly miscast. And every time I watch what? it, I just get more and more irritated at how profoundly miscast this movie is and how much better Goodfellas could be if, you know, Martin Scorsese had not cast people he dug in it, not cast people he'd been working with for 20 years, and just cast young actors like the parts demand, man. Wait a second. What are you talking about, Amy? First of all, the lead of this movie, Ray Liotta, is a no one, really. I mean, he's Field of Dreams. This is like his fourth film. He's not like a known commodity. Like, I, I believe that he's a guy who, I mean, there's a famous quote that he said that, you know, uh, the studio would have preferred Eddie Murphy over him in this part. Like, that's how much they didn't want him because he was a no-name. He brought nothing to the table. Um, I think he's perfect. Like, he, this is our introduction to him. Even though he was in, you know, uh, Field of Dreams, it's, this is the movie that you kind of wrap your head around when you think of Ray Liotta. It's this image of this movie, I believe. I mean, I'm I'm a Field of Dreams girl. I've told you my mom had okay. a huge crush on Kevin Costner when I was a kid. So if there was sure. a modern movie that was always on repeat that she would play, that was the only one, that and Braveheart. But, so you think, wow, your mom had a, okay, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and Dances with Will. So yeah, my mom had a huge Costner thing, which now that I am an older person, I understand completely. I didn't get it at the time. But here's <laughs> the thing. The first time that we I talked about Goodfellas on the canon it was Ray Liotta who was so much the weak link for me. I was like, Ray Liotta, he's a little bit bland. And this time I found myself appreciating a lot more of his physicality. Like I like the way that when something is about to go down and we as the audience don't even know exactly what it is yet, we'll see somebody come on a door, blah, blah, blah. You instantly see Ray Liotta just leap up. Like he has this electric mm-hmm. energy where he's always cooling, smoothing, moving, fixing. He is so alive in this film and the way that he moves and interacts with the other characters, the worry in his eye. But actually, this watch, I like him. He's too old for the role. You know, like that. there's that part where um, he goes on the date with Lorraine. And she's yeah. like, man, he has so much power. And he's only 21. And you're like, 21? Come well, on, I mean, man. I, think, I, mean, he's I like- think we're pushing ages. <laughs> this whole movie. I mean, and look, I'm happy this movie is done pre-Irishman. Because I think they just sort of did some hair and makeup. And let people go from like 1955 to like 1985. You know, like they really... Hey. But the age is the problem for me. You know, like Ray Liotta, 35, playing 2021. 20, it's weird, but he is incredibly beautiful in this movie. You know, his eyes are so gorgeous. That first just freeze frame on his face at the beginning, you're like, whoa, who is that incredibly handsome man? I'm I'm more on board with Ray Liotta here. I'm not quite as annoyed by his natural eyelashes, which he can't help, which make him look like he's in intolerance. That's not his fault. <laughs> it's just the way that he's built. He's just built to look like a man out of time. But then the, the age really does come into a huge factor when we're talking about Joe Pesci's character, man. Because, like, here's the thing. This is, like, to me, this is the fundamental reason why whatever the true story is for Henry Hill that he's trying to talk about here, that he wants to translate about, 
a bunch of young, rough around the, the edges guys who are on the fringes of Polly's mafia, who aren't even made yet in the case of Tommy and will never be in the case of Tommy. And the other guys can't get made at all. The problem is, in the mafia, when you're a guy who's like their kind of age, you're in your 20s. You know, you're like a hothead, you're young, and you see this in the dialogue. You know, Polly keeps saying things like, oh, these kids, oh, these hothead kids, oh, Tommy, he's a crazy kid. And you're like, Joe Pesci's 47, man. And he does not hide looking 47. He looks so 47. And the reason that becomes a problem is because if you're a 47 year old looking guy in the mafia, you would think, hey, that guy probably knows what he's doing because he's survived this long to be 47. It carries some tones of gravitas. Whereas if you're like a younger hothead, then yeah, it's more likely that you're going to live and die. You don't, you don't have a long lifespan when you're in the, when you're in the mafia. Well, I, I hear what you're saying, like to a certain degree. I think they had to make a choice. And the choice was, how do you do this? Do you take young people and age them up? Do you take middle-aged people and have them kind of play the edges of it? And, you know, as we're introduced to De Niro's character, uh, Jimmy, he is established as being someone who is a big guy in the world. Like, you don't mess with him. He runs a lot of stuff. He runs point. Now, uh, obviously, Paul Sorvino's the big, big boss. But I feel like when you meet Jimmy, he is older. He's established a little bit older. I didn't think about Pesci in that way that he should be a little bit younger. Um, I guess in the 80s, he was 30. You know, he was born in 1950, the actual character. Uh, So, you know, okay, you're talking about somebody... That's at least in their 30s. Well, you know. uh, they, I, well okay. Let, let me give you some numbers. Can I give you some numbers? Because okay, yeah, I, got, I got real crazy and I looked all this up. So okay, here's the please. thing. You know, Pesci himself, by the way, has said that wise guys like his character only have a life cycle of like eight or nine years. So the numbers we got here. When Pesci's in this movie, he's 47, right? Now, 47 mm-hmm. is incredibly old for a gangster. I mean, 47. At his age, at 47, Bugsy Siegel had already had his whole career and died. Al Capone, he's about to die. You know, John Gotti had been locked in prison forever. Like, when you're that old, you're a guy with a lot of weight, okay? So that's kind of the setup of, of the wisdom that you would think that having the age of Joe Pesci carries when you see that character walk. And when he walks in the room, he walks into the room like he's like, he owns the place. He's older. Everybody looks to him. And it really screws up the whole thing because the actual Tommy isn't even half Pesci's age. He's even younger than that. Like the scene where Tommy kills Billy Bats and they have that kind of generational showdown of like, I remember you when you were a shoe shine boy, blah, 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 blah. I mean, that Tommy, that character is supposed to be 20 years old in that confrontation scene, but it's 47 year old looking Joe Pesci. And the generational stuff just doesn't click for me. You don't feel it. Like the real Tommy had a lifespan where he dies at 28, 28. And it just, I just, okay. I just want you to, I know I love Pesci. Pesci's great. He wins the Oscar. He's great. But picture of Goodfellas was the Goodfellas you loved, but with an actor who was like in his 20s. Wouldn't that t- character just make more sense? I get I get your point. And when you look at all these things, you can definitely say like, okay, sure, that doesn't fully work. But emotionally, these characters are working for me. Like, I don't care how they look because I'm committed to this world. And yes, I hear that if you would have done the younger version of this, it, it could have it could have had a thing. Look, the beginning of the film when you meet uh, when you meet Henry Hill, it's a younger guy, and I actually think that that the reason why this movie actually works so well is that kid is really good. Uh, he 
he really carries it really well. To me, it's all about the emotional weight. Like you get that, you know, Tommy's a hothead. Jimmy is this guy who's going to ice you out. Like, and I'm there emotionally. And that's what I think makes this movie transcend. It's not trying to do an in- aggressively faithful adaptation of the story in the sense of we got to get the ages right. I think they're emotionally putting you in all these shoes and you feel certain ways. And I feel like that is what resonates with me. And then when you look at something like Sopranos, you could see, you could make this point for Sopranos too. Like what's the average age for a mafia guy or whatever. It's like that show it's all over the board and are they made? Are they not made? Are they big? Are they coming up? Are they not like, I mean, they're not like, they're not the like the movers and the shakers. You know, these are not the kings of New York. They're just, they're in their own little area. They're living pretty small life. And there's for robbing this airport and this Lufthansa heist, which really kind of puts all the pressure on them. And at the end of the day, Henry Hill goes away for a drug offense. Not even, you know, it's not even that big. It's not like, oh, he ran all of organized crime. It's not like Christopher Walken and like King of New York or something like this. Well, that's just the thing. You're right. It's not about that, you know, and it's not like the whole Godfather structure. But because these guys are older and because they were all in the Godfather, a lot of them are in the Godfather, um, it feels a lot the same when I think he's I think that Henry Hill is trying to tell a really different story about like hotheads and weirdos on the fringes. And I think that just choosing to cast an actor that you like, who's your buddy, who is really great at it, I think making that choice makes me question a lot of the choices in the film because it is it is the wrong choice. But is it the wrong choice if this performance is iconic and beloved? It's like it's not. It's like it's everyone universally agrees that this is like one of Joe Pesci's, if not his best performance in a film. But it makes it so strange. I mean, I, I can understand that you love and are, and are attached to this performance. Absolutely. But that's because we're not given a better one. Like, we could have been given an equally good one by a person who was right for the part. You know, I mean, mm. isn't, imagine that. I just want you to hold that movie in your hands because Scorsese, sure, he's a great director. He could direct a young guy who'd be perfect for this role and turn him into an icon. But by doing it the way they did, by casting it, I mean, there's that weirdness where you see the young guy who plays Henry, you know, dealing the cigarettes, you know, meeting Tommy for the first time, meeting a Tommy who's his age. And then suddenly you go to the future and Tommy's twice his age and what's happening? And like, oh, that's the same Tommy. What's going on? It's bizarre. It's just bizarre to me that you that he would make that choice. Here's here's the only thing I can say about this age argument, because I feel like there's a lot of things to get into about this film. And we could tussle over this for a long time. But the truth is, is Hollywood is known for this warped age world that we live in. It's the reason why 20 year old women are viewed as contemporaries to 50 plus year old men. It's like, oh, it's not a big deal. Oh, they're the same age. It's when you look at the age differences between most leading men in action movies or really across the board, it's always younger women, older men, and they're always playing younger. It's like age is a very bizarre thing in this world of Hollywood. It just is. It's not, it has nothing to do with anything more than that's our world. Like, yes, somebody who's in their 30s can play someone in their 20s. Is it right? Is it wrong? I don't know. It doesn't feel like they're running around. Like, the Irishman has elements of, like, oh, now you're trying to really... I mean, and I know they're doing it through digital and stuff like that, but, like, it doesn't feel like they're trying to do much. It feels like a little bit more like old Hollywood. I don't know. I mean, I feel like watching this movie, then watching The Irishman, and then watching this movie again, I'm like, what are you doing, Scorsese? 
Like, just get some fresh blood in your movies. What are you doing? Well, look, like, look at look at look at Jimmy Stewart and uh, and and what's her face? Grace Kelly in Rear Window. Like, they're supposed to be like he's like what like six you know fifty in that movie. She's like what? That's 20? part of the joke. The part of the joke is that like he's too old for this. That's built into the movie. Nobody in that movie is like, well, you're a twenty two year old strapping young man, Jimmy Stewart. That's part of the film. You know. All right. Well. Again, I feel like these guys are not, I just don't feel like they're leading with it. But all right, I'll, if I give you the casting, because I feel like all we right. can circle this forever. And I think we could probably find examples in movies that you love of bizarro casting. Like whenever you look at the numbers, like it's like, oh, it's shocking. It's like, oh yeah, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is dating someone who wasn't even born when I'm he was I'm not even 20. talking about the dating. I could be talking. I mean, listen, we just did a thing on House Party and I revealed to you that Kid was, I think, 28 when he made yes. house party yeah you know what he plays a convincing high schooler he actually plays a convincing high schooler joe pesci looks like he has a problem with this sciatica joe pesci looks like he takes heartburn medicine he's not convincingly oh, young my god amy all right let's talk about joe pesci in the sense of this performance i know all you right. think there's some magical person out there that would have done a better version of this but this is you can't deny this is an electric performance. One of the first moments that we see is, you know, how this, how am I funny? That scene. I thought he was going to shit. Pow, ping, pow. fuck is, I wish I was big just once. You're a big cop. Really funny. Really funny. What do you mean I'm funny? It's funny, you know. It's a good story. It's funny. You're a funny guy. What do you mean? You mean the way I talk? What? just, you know, you, it's, you're just funny. It's, you know, the way you tell the story and everything. Funny how? I mean, what's funny about it? Tommy, no, you got it all wrong. He's... Oh, oh, Anthony. He's a big boy. He knows what he said. What'd you say? You're right. Funny how? Just, what? Just, you know, you're, you're funny. <laughs> you mean, so? let me understand this, because I, you know, maybe it's me, I'm a little fucked up, maybe. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? I'm not just... You know how you tell a story? What? No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Get the fuck out of here, Tommy. <laughs> you motherfucker. I almost had him. I almost had him. Yeah, stuttering prick yet. And I think one of the problems that this movie probably carries with it, and it's not through any fault of its own, is how copied it is. You know, it's to me, it has like that diehard problem where it's sort of like, we've now seen this so many times that it starts to feel cliche on some level. But like when you watch this, it feels so kind of pure. And this scene has been parodied so many times. I'm like, ugh. But when you watch the scene, you're like, this is a, this is an amazing entrance for this character, even though we kind of saw him a little bit before. But he is, this is a great scene, a great performance. You can't deny that. I'm not, I, my problem is not at all with Pesci's performance. It's just Okay, then the, talk about Pesci's performance. What do you like about it? Who cares I, about the age? We got to put I the age on the side. Okay. Put the age, put the age in a box. We've we've dealt no, with it as much the as we age, can. 
Okay, we, okay, we can put the age in a box. I'm just saying. For a second. I want to be clear about it. My problem with okay. the age is just because it feels like a bad directorial choice. It just feels okay. like a director who's not paying attention to his material. That's all. Okay. And, and okay. I think that that is a pattern that I see come up in this film a lot, a director who's not paying attention to his material. Okay. Okay. It took okay. over, uh, by the way, it did take over a year and a half for Leota to get this part. That's how intense he took the casting process of this movie. Uh, you know, and yes, you're right. Like when he talked to De Niro, he let De Niro pick between Tommy and, and Jimmy. He picked Jimmy. So I think he just wanted De Niro in the film. And I'm in. I'm, I'm in for that connection. I think he gets great performances out, whether it's DiCaprio or it's De Niro. I think he gets, like when I watched De Niro in this movie, I'm like, oh, this is like, this is the version of De Niro that I love. It's like this midnight run. I mean, he's fantastic throughout. I mean, he, he is really, really good at midnight run. I just watched that for the first time. That movie's great. Oh, it's so, so good. It's, it's one of my favorites. But th- this is like that kind of mid-age De Niro that is, oh, he's doing some interesting stuff. He hasn't just done all the comedy stuff yet. He's like still really trying. I even like that movie Mad Dog and Glory. Uh, but this is like that interesting middle-aged narrow who i think is doing just putting up great performance after great performance anyway um but you're right so he's he's definitely you know catering to some of his favorites but then also bringing in people like lorraine brocco and uh i mean who is fantastic in this movie as well i want to talk about her in a little bit but he so i think i think he is giving i think he's paying attention to casting is all i'm saying i think there is attention to casting because when you see Debbie Mazar, when you see Ileana Douglas, when you see Michael Imperioli and Kevin Corgan, you look and go, wow, he assembled great new faces for this movie. This is 1990. This is like a lot of their first performances. Sam Jackson. Like, you know, like, so I, I don't think you can slight his casting. I think his casting is good. Yes, maybe with the two he leaned on people that he knew and maybe that's a financing decision because clearly the studio didn't want to get behind this movie with Ray Liotta. So maybe he did he need to put two giant faces in there to be like, you got, let me make my movie. Because by the way, this is the most expensive movie he has made up in his career at this point, which is crazy. You know, this is like a mid-budget movie, but like this is, you know, this is a, this is a big, a big moment for him. But anyway, but anyway, I mean, that's possible. And to Pesci's credit, he did turn it down at first. Okay. Yeah. So I think Pesci deep down knew that it wasn't really the role for him. But he did uh, great. He did great. He did great. And yes, I can, I, I can give my benediction absolutely to Debbie Mazar, absolutely to Ileana Douglas. They're fantastic. No problem with them. I think Lorraine Bracco is the best thing in the movie. I think Lorraine uh, Bracco is incredible. Lorraine Bracco, and you talked a little bit earlier about uh, Ray Liotta's energy, right? And the whole like third act of this film is based on that electric energy. I think he plays coked out in a way that is incredibly unique. And I mean, it's the editing that Thelma Schoonmaker does so well. It's like, but when you watch Lorraine Bracco in that, that's what kind of came to my attention this time. I'm like, she's fucking amazing. Her paranoid, drugged out version of herself, after you've seen her kind of be a little bit more straight throughout the film i was like more of this she's so fucking good in that last act i mean she's wonderful 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 yeah when she takes that gun and shoves it in her pants yeah the whole thing and i mean i think the makeup gets a lot of the credit possibly goes a little bit overkill for making ray Liotta just so white and deathly 
Oh, but yeah. Was, I mean, his eyes are so fucked up. And Debbie Mazar yeah. looks like a mess, too. Oh, yeah. You, she, but she yeah, has, like, maybe four scenes in the whole movie. And each time, she just looks steadily worse and worse and worse and worse. It's brutal. Oh. It's brutal to watch. It's excellent costuming. That's fine. I mean, by the way, and, and we talk about the costuming. Let's talk about the the sets, to the set design on this movie. I mean, talk about, I don't even think it's overkill, but when they're showing off that apartment that's, like, like Asian themed, you know, and with these like leather couches and a wall, that rock wall that opens up to like an entertainment system and bar. It's like, oh, this is my life, by the way. Like I, I like these are the people that I grew up with. And I think there's a, a connection that I feel to this as well uh, in that. You sense. grew like, up li- with these people? I mean, I grew up in this world of, I mean, <laughs> Like the long and the short of it is that my grandfather happened to, there's, a, there's. I the sense you trying to figure out what you can say and what you can. Yeah. I mean, it's all public record. I just don't know how much I want to get into it. Like here openly, like just to say that I've been around this world and people like this uh, very much in my life. I'm an Italian uh, kid that grew up in New York city in Long Island. And, uh, and I, I had, I've, I've been on the outskirts of this world uh, many a time. My family, never there. I will say that my grandfather got a thousand hours of community service because he was uh, mafia adjacent. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so th- there's, a, there's a couple things that I, that, I, that I connect to. It's the same reason why I can't watch Real Housewives of, of, uh, of New York because it reminds me too much of home, that this feels so familiar to me. It's like, oh, I, I know these I, I, you know, I grew up in Queens and and Long Island, and yeah, I just there's some connection there that I feel connected. So then anyway, you're like that's... Scorsese. You're like Scorsese saying that he moved to Little Italy when, in, uh, Italy when he was eight, and that he grew up around this. That he knew these guys, and it wasn't until he was older that he realized what some of the guys on the corner were really doing. Yeah, I mean, I had a very good friend whose dad was on disability, disability in quotes, but yet had the nicest house on our block, and like, and it was gorgeous, and. And then soon later, I found out like he was essentially like a bag man, uh, you know, just yeah, like I, I've, I've seen some stuff. I've seen some stuff. And I'm like, I'm not I'm not uh, glorifying it. I just but I, I there's a there's something I connect to on these people, by the way, that going all the way back to where we started like that. Am I funny? You that speech that I've lived in that speech. I was put in a headlock when I was at my cousin's graduation by a guy who owned an Italian restaurant. Because he's like, you're a comedian? I'm a comedian. Tell me a joke. And it, it got so aggressive. And I'm like in my early 20s. I'm just trying to have like a nice, there with my, my cousin. And like that energy of literally, I was, I was in a suit. I was put in a headlock because I guess I was like threatening to him because I did comedy and this person thought I was funny. Like I literally remember like my head in someone's arm. And I'm like, oh, this is like, this is, this is the energy I relate to on a, in a major, major way. I mean, I have a couple questions. Sure. One, this is more a statement than a question. As a wasp, I find that story absolutely terrifying. All we ever do is look at people mean. That's, that's wow. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, point two, well then, given all of that background, what was it like in 1990 in your world when this movie came out? I mean, this is the movie that for me and my friends, I mean, this is, a, this is, probably coming out in theaters, which I'm not able to see before I'm in high school. And then this is the movie in high school that is on 
like repeat all the time. So much so that I hated this movie at a certain point. Like I really? hated the third act. Oh yeah, like because you know you overwatch something, and I just felt it to be long and boring. I didn't like the beginning, and I didn't like the end. And uh, so, like, I grew out of this movie. Like, I just, like, it was just too much there. I mean, I've also grown up in a world where everyone, like, loves The Godfather, too. It's sort of, like, it's just overkill. So um, I just found myself never really, like, last night was the first time I appreciated the third act. I was like, oh, this is fucking great. Like, I just, like, I didn't, I like, it, like, maybe it was the fact that I haven't seen it in a decade that allowed me to, like, I was surprised I didn't own it. Like last night when I went to go watch, I was like, I don't own this movie. Like I, I've seen it so much. I had the DVD that you had to flip over. DVDs that you had to flip over. That's a uh, thing? It, that was a thing in the beginning Whoa. parts of DVDs. Um, but be that as it may, like this was a big cultural phenomenon. I'm like, again, I'm from New York and this was, uh, you know, very, very much an embrace. I'm not being the voice of, uh, of, of the mafia, I'm not being the voice of anything, but I, I'm from a very Italian household. That this is like a big, a big move, a big, big move. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and one percent on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I mean, it's interesting, like, bringing up The Godfather, bringing up, like, movies and how they kind of tie into behavior. You know, we talked about this in The Godfather, that when The Godfather came out, it made people in the mafia at the time be more mafia. They're like, oh, we want to mm-hmm. start talking like that and using that kind of thing and using those kind of threats and pulling into some of the same arguments, you know? And I think it's interesting that Goodfellas is set mostly in the decade where The Godfather comes out, you know? And mm. it's not mentioned to in the film, but it seems really similar. I mean, when Polly is giving that talk to Henry Hill, like, I don't want drugs in this neighborhood, we don't want that. I don't want to die in prison. He's basically saying what Don Corleone would have just said in a movie that he had probably just watched. And I was thinking yeah. about the interplay a lot between like these characters who in real life would have definitely watched Goodfellas or would have definitely watched The Godfather at the time making the mistakes that you see the guys make in the same movie still. I mean, Henry Hill right. getting really into dealing drugs when he's seen that in The Godfather, that's when all hell breaks loose. I think that's right. so interesting. Well, I, I love that idea that the mafia becomes the last great representation of it, right? Like, so I, I feel there is an energy and it's it, it's not necessarily fully there, but I'll make the connection and go, you know, there's something so respectable about the Godfather. And then I think that these men in this movie try to be very respectable, you know, it, it, whether it's even 
I mean, this is in the 50s in the beginning when he gets the nice suit, but there are these elements that cross over. And, and, and then The Sopranos brings in this other version of the mafia, which is more of the track suits, the New Jersey, the meets, the, you know, there's, there's defining elements in each one that, that make them all feel like the same part. But the way the mafia kind of morphs all the time, and I feel like the Godfather is the beginning, or I should say Godfather 2 is the beginning, and then uh, Sopranos seems like the, the last great, you know, seminal representation of that thing. But yeah, I, uh, I was watching how, like, this is the middle point. This is like the messy middle. It's like it's neither it's neither uh, as wonderful or as highfalutin as The Godfather, nor is it as base as Sopranos. I think Soprano it, it's and I love that this captures this moment. I think as drugs kind of come in and as this it kind of breaks from old school to new school. And this what that's what this movie really captures. And I think what this movie does such a great job of is not really showing you the bad guys. Like, I feel like this movie doesn't, doesn't really bang you over the head. Like with this is good or this is bad. I think the Godfather does that as well too. It doesn't seem like it's preachy. It's kind of just telling you a story, but then when they make a point, like to me, the, the most shocking moment in this movie is when they, uh, when they shoot, uh, Michael Imperioli in the foot the first time, because like, oh, fuck, right, these are dangerous guys. I'm having a good time watching this movie. It's like, yeah, they stabbed that guy in the trunk, but we, you get it. Like, he is kind of shitty to, uh, to Pesci. And, and not that that means anything, but when they shoot Michael Imperioli, uh, you see, like, a close-up of, the, of his foot kind of exploding. I don't know. I feel like they did a really good job of, of making you on their side, but then as an audience member, you start to slowly separate from them. And I think from that point in the movie on, you really start – not vicariously living through them, but then starting to watch and judge them from the side. I think that that this movie does a great job of that. Whereas I don't think the Godfather does that necessarily. Well, I think there's a big difference. And I think you're kind of describing exactly that. Like, I mean, the Godfather is about family, right? You're mm-hmm. born into this family. What are you going to do with the choices of this family? You've married in, you're stuck with this in-law, you're stuck with each other. How do you reconcile the needs of this family to what has to be done here? Whereas family's not a point of good fellas at all. You know, like, Henry Hill leaves his family to the side. People's families don't really matter except for his relationship with his wife. The family only in the, the sense of putting up appearances. Like when Polly um, and Jimmy come over to be like, you got to get back together with Lorraine just for appearances. That's really what family is in this movie. It's more about what draws them together being the pursuit of money. You know, like this is yeah, the but- money centered one. And I mean, yeah. Money, being an outlaw, the fun of but- it. It's about, it's about, it's about bros. And what I mean by that is okay. things like the funny scene, you know, am I funny to you? Things like when uh, Pesci shoots Spider in the foot. What's most interesting about those scenes for me is watching Ray Liotta. You know, watching right. how, how when you're not blood related to any of these guys, when you're not even full Italian, you get in by playing along. So it's such an interesting film about male dynamics to me. The way that Ray Liotta during the the, the um, scene right after the MF Funny D scene where he's like beating up the guy who owns the restaurant, he's got his arms across his chest and he's cackling like loud and big and kind of yeah. fake, but visibly laughing to be part of the gang. And he looks like Nosferatu. The way you watch Ray Liotta smooth and excuse things and pardon his bros and make everybody get along, the kind of 
dirty, sleazy work of making people get along by acting like nothing that anybody does is that bad. And he didn't mean it. And yes, he shot you in the foot, but it's not that big of a deal. We're all right. Get over it. We're all friends. That glue is the glue of a movie more than blood. And I find that glue really interesting. But can I make an argument here and say that, you know, Mario Puzo is not a mafia man. He wrote this story about the mafia. And I think uh, from a screenwriting perspective, from a, as a novelist, he's writing a really compelling drama. Here is a true story. Like these are real people, real interactions. And I think that the family is the family that you work for. I think that The Sopranos captures this really well too. It's like, yes, I like that idea that it's, it's more the family of bros. It's more like, I got your back. Don't rat on my friends. We're going to like that moment when Henry Hill gets arrested in the beginning of the film, you know, for the cigarettes and they're all there to greet him. That's not his family, but it is his family. It's the same family that when Pesci kills uh, the guy in the bar, uh, like, okay, we're going to go, we're going to go bury him. Like, we're going to do this where we got your back. Like, and so there is that. I understand the dis- the difference of it, but I think it's the same. I think it's the same thing. I think one version is the Hollywood version, and the other version is like, no, this is like the true life version of this. Well, I like, think one has the element of choice, and one doesn't, and this one has the element of choice. And, and you see how this family falls apart. I mean, when when Ray Liotta gets out of prison the second time, those guys aren't there. You know, it's Lorraine who's there, and when um and when when Tommy shoots Spider to death. They're not going to help him bury that one. You know, that's when that's when De Niro's like, you got this one. This one's all you. You know, there is a right. point where family ends. And I think that's in this movie a lot. Like you see, you know, you see people like Maury showing up at um, Maury showing up at Henry's wedding. Maury showing up to get a ch- to look at his apartment. Maury doing all this stuff. But when the time comes to kill Maury, you don't see Henry feel bad about it. He prevents it. He does what he can. But it's a lot of like, oh, my friend over there. Good cop, bad cop. Can't do much about it. And that's baked uh, yeah. in. That's baked into the film. Well, but it, it's baked into the film, and I think it's more realistic and more brutal. And it is sort of like you can't trust these people. Like you're built into the illusion of this is my family. I need to protect them so they don't rat me out. I don't rat them out. But at the end of the day, it's the big pussy turn and, and Sopranos. It's like, yeah, but if if you fuck me, that's it. It's like, and it's almost like what what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Like when they call De Niro on the phone at the end of the movie, they go, there's nothing we could have done. He's gone. He's gone. It's like, Oh, like, you know, it's like, there's no apology. There's no anything. And you feel like you feel De Niro, like taking in that moment. And it's, and there is a reaction to that. That's their friend, but, but also respecting the notion of it. So there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Do you think at the end, De Niro's trying to kill Lorraine Bracco, or do you think that that's her being paranoid? I think he's trying to kill her. Yeah. I think he's definitely trying to kill her. And I think he would definitely have killed Henry. I think you, or I think he would have at least kidnapped Lorraine and tried to use it to make Henry do something. Yeah. Hurt her. And I feel like that's what encapsulates this whole film is like, it's family until you jeopardize me. Like we're all in it together. Unless I feel jeopardized and all bets are off. And, and you know, like, the reason why Joe Pesci is dead is because of family. He killed a made man. So they must 
do this. And they're not, not only are they going to do this, they're going to do it in a way that's even worse. They're going to shoot him through the face. You know, it's, it, um, so I do think, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think that this movie paints a rougher picture of what that is. Whereas the Godfather paints a very magical, like we have to be in it. And, and, and the biggest thing is Diane Keaton leaving family. How could you do this? It's the ultimate yeah. betrayal. Um, well, there's but, no yeah. honor here. I mean, The Godfather is about honor. Mm-hmm. And this, the honor is not really a code because you no. know you are seeing it through the true stories of a guy who lied. Yeah. Which is why I do almost want to put a big asterisk on a lot of this because this movie is based on a book that he narrated to Nicholas um, who did the screenwriting. And, you know, we're getting only his point of view, really. Absolutely. But I mean, and I think, and I, I would even go one step further and go, it's based on a book that he wrote. Henry Hill's an insane person. I grew up my entire life listening to him calling Howard Stern. He's an insane man. And he literally, after this movie comes out, gets out of witness protection uh, because he wants to get the fame of this. So, yes, a flawed narrator, 100%. But um, what is so kind of interesting about it, though, is that they wrote it. Him and uh, Scorsese wrote this together. Scorsese, I think, is visualizing the whole thing as they're writing. I've, I've heard Nicholas Pelleggi go like, oh, yeah, he's like saying, write cream here. And he's like, what? what do you mean cream? He's like, just write it. And he's already like kind of planning out the songs. And this movie is so beautifully directed. Um, but then based on everything that everyone said, this movie was heavily, heavily improvised. Like Nicholas Pelleggi goes out and says very openly, I didn't write am I a clown? I didn't write the, you know, am I, am I funny to you? That was, a, uh, that was something that, uh, that Joe Pesci brought to uh, Scorsese. Scorsese is like, I love this. Keep it here. When we improvise, just drop that in and let's get everyone's reactions to it. And, and this movie, I know you say it's miscast, but I think the charm of this movie and what is brought out is that these actors, these three in the center, maybe conclude Paul Servino too, you know, kind of extrapolate on what was there and then kind of make it real through their own experiences. Because all these little things, it's like, whether it's Lorraine Bracco bringing her kids to set as her kids, it, it's, you know, it's Ray Liotta going like, my mom just died. So now I'm going to take that anger at my mom dying and beat the shit out of that guy working on his, uh, you know, Trans Am in that scene. Like there's so much of these actors in this movie that it kind of even, it is a true story. It's like, it is based on a true story, but it's a very unique Thinks. I think he let them have so much uh, reign to create these characters. It is interesting to me though, that the three guys at the center, they don't really seem to have that much chemistry with each other. You know, mm. I don't really see their bond. And maybe that's in part because Ray Liotta deliberately has kind of like this Teflon quality where nothing sinks into him very much. Like he is a person who doesn't let that many emotions get to him. Right. I, I, I feel like there's moments when the film is kind of trying for more of a bond. Like, I do find it a little strange when De Niro bursts into tears when he hears about Tommy getting executed. Because oh, yeah. he, he's suddenly showing a ton of emotion, a ton of emotion. You know, a guy who's seen a lot of death, witnessed a lot of death, enacted a lot of death upon people. It, it feels like a big scene that I'm always kind of cut back by. And not like, oh, you shouldn't have cried or men don't cry. That's not what I'm saying at all. But just I didn't quite see that there. In their connection, it's and, and maybe you know, I would have seen it more if if it was a a younger Pesci, you, because you then I would be reminded that like it was that it was De Niro who brought him in when he was a kid. But you kind of forget that when they're the same age. But you don't see that in the scene where they're at the dinner table with uh, Scorsese's mom. I mean, that scene is 
I mean, again, a great moment in, in I'm going to say great moment in cinema. Uh, it's just like a great, just a fantastic scene where they've just killed this guy. They go to Pesci's house to get a shovel. His mom is awake. His mom is actually uh, Martin Scorsese's mother. That scene is so casual. And I feel like, like you see that connection there. I have, you see the connection when they're at the bar and that guy says, go get your shine box, how they all get his back. Like, I feel like when they go over to his house and say like, you got to get back with Lorraine Bracco, it's there. It's, you see it as it's for appearances. I see it as these are our friends. We protect our friends. We're trying to do this stuff. It may not be the smartest instincts for these things, but it's, it's, there is a, a code or a bro bond. I don't know. I mean, I see them see have scenes like that with a lot of people. They also wind up killing like the dude with the afro. You know, they do joke around with their buddies in just the same way. You know, oh, they, guy, and then, yeah. they, then they kill the guy with the afro and put him in the meat locker. There's a lot of people that they have fun with, but also kill. So, right. yeah, but also, OK, you know, I, I, but it they fucked up. They deeper. all were guilty. They were all were guilty of fucking up. They they they, uh, they bought the house. They bought the car. They bought the coat. You can't you can't have it both ways. You fell asleep in your truck. You're going to get your ass hit. Like, it wasn't like De Niro went out and De Niro's paranoid, right? And Pesci has, uh, you know, is an inferiority complex. So De Niro and those great sequences, like where, you know, when you see him making the decision to kill these people, it's not like, I'm a mafia guy. I'm going to go kill everybody. It's like, okay, I'm there. I protect my ass. This fucker just bought a coat. This asshole just bought a car. This, you know, it's like, he's trying to stay out of jail. You're not uh, going to tell me that there's not a bit of him that wouldn't be like, okay, Pesci just killed a, ma- a made guy. Now we got the Gotti family who are going to come after us. And I can't yeah. be mad at him about that. Like, he can't be like, well, it makes sense. He killed the guy. I had to help bury him. I mean, that's the same self-protective instinct. It's not here. But I think at the end, that's why De Niro doesn't go after the people who killed Pesci. He's like, I got it. We, we tried to get away with something. Like, like they did. Like, that's the beginning. That's like the the first sin of this group, right? This is the first break of this group. When they they align against the family, the bro family, to do something that was out of sorts. And then from that moment on, everything starts to go in a shaky direction. I mean, I'm Um, more content seeing this as a film about how, you know, blood is thicker than bro family. I'm I'm content if this is a film about how bro family isn't really that sticky. Because mm-hmm. I think that I think that is here in the film. I think that does make sense. It's just De Niro crying that doesn't make sense. But I mean, but like, uh, I don't know. I feel like if you spent thirty years with somebody, you would cry that they died. Uh, you know, this movie isn't also about them. This is the movie through Henry Hill's eyes. We're watching Henry experience them. Like, I feel like there's a lot of scenes between Tommy and Jimmy that we're not seeing. I think we're seeing Tommy and Henry. I think we're seeing Jimmy and Henry. And sometimes they're all together, but it's how he's experiencing them. And a lot of the times the way Henry is experiencing uh, Joe Pesci's character is as this fucking maniac. Like, you know, it's like not getting in his face. I mean, you know, like we see that one moment is like, come out to dinner with me because she won't date me if, uh, you know, she won't date an Italian guy. I I feel like they're like, he's intimidated by him the entire movie. I mean, never, it never ends. I don't think it ends. I think in many respects, Henry Hill would have probably been dead if Pesci was like a made man. Like if Pesci didn't get killed, because I'd be more nervous around Pesci than De Niro. Although De Niro is a lot more of a snake. Uh, I feel like, you know, I just didn't trust Pesci. And I feel like 
I feel like Henry Hill's character never touches Pesci's character. I think Henry Hill, he's kind of like he's kind of like a Cato Kalin. It's hard to get up that much energy to kill Cato Kalin. You know, he's there. He's a fine guy. He's cracking jokes. He's carrying a little bit of weight. He's, like, got a, he's he, Cato Kalin. He's, he's, he's just let them all out. He brought down the whole family. He's not the Cato. He brought down the whole family. He's Cato Kalin testified. I mean, you know. So that's I it. mean, it's a different thing. He's it's Kato, a, uh, they see him like Cato Kalin up until up until he really rats everybody out. <laughs> um, he's just a likable uh, dummy guy that they're like, he's fine. I We're don't bros. think so. I don't think so at all. I think he's a guy who is. I think that this movie does a great job of also just showing the low stakes of what they were doing. Right. Where it gets into trouble for him is when he gets involved in drugs and that that that. That whole sequence, that, like after he gets out of jail, he's almost being like a defiant child to kind of bring home this like family analogy. Like they weren't there for me, even though they couldn't really be there for him because of parole. Like he's like, so now I got to take care of myself. And so he's like, I'm doing it my own way. So he starts bringing in drugs that screws up more of the family dynamic. It's like he, you know, like there's that moment when De Niro and him are on the stoop when he's doing those drugs and he's giving him the guns and he's like, uh, these drugs are messing your brain. I thought that that this, this movie does a great job of kind of showing you. Yeah. It's like De Niro isn't bad in that moment. That's the, like he, that's him telling me that story. Like, Oh yeah. He's in my drugs are messing my brain, but I'm not messed up at all. It's like, no, no, you are messed up. Like we're not, we're not seeing all sides of the conversation. We're not, he's yeah, an unreliable. He doesn't narrator. register at all. I, the childishness I think really pops out a lot at the beginning because everything he likes about being in the mafia is kind of childish. You know, I yeah. get to cut the line. Uh, people carried my mom's groceries home. Like these yeah. are the things that excite him. Yeah. Uh, bullying the mailman is crazy. It's like, oh, like, what, like, but that, like, that kind of like, you know, just being a big shot is so interesting. Yeah, his pleasures are really small. Like the neighbors don't park in my driveway. You know, right. He has. He's not a guy of great ambition. What satisfies him is these low level ambitions. You know, he's just like he's just there. He's just a guy. And so, in a way, I do kind of wish there was more of that in the narration because mm-hmm. you know the narration to me is oh i really used to really hate the opening narration a lot um because i felt like it just exactly one for one described exactly what we see on the screen you know which it still kind of does i don't find it as egregious as i used to i mm-hmm. mean as as kind of a just a background statement you know i feel like narration on its own is not bad you know, right. but clunky narration, clunky narration is kind of like the subtitles that we had at Intolerance. You know, clunky narration is when it's telling you something you don't really need that like somebody like a chaplain or a Buster Keaton can say, you don't need to explain that. The audience is with us. The audience can catch it. And I feel like this movie does have a lot of kind of clunky narration where it's explaining things to us that we can just see and that it doesn't yeah. quite trust us to just take in the information. It used to really bother me about the opening. It doesn't bother me quite as much, but like I prefer narration when it subverts what we see, which I think Henry Hill could do really well. You know, Henry Hill is such a deluded character that I could see him pumping up what he was doing, pumping up what he was saying, and the movie undercutting it with what we show, which doesn't right. quite really happen. We don't so much get his POV. Like, but don't you? But don't you think that that like I want to go back to what you were saying about this character when we first meet him? It's like, oh, I got to cut the line. Oh, someone carried my groceries, and at the end, it's like, oh. Now I don't get to cut the line. Now I got to wait. Now I got to be a schmo. Like the bookends of the narration are actually really great. And I love how it switches when he kind of talks right down the barrel of the camera. And it's like, 
he almost comes out of his narration to tell you. And I almost feel like this whole movie is him not narrating the film, but him testifying at the trial. And it ends on the scene. So I feel like he's walking you through this whole journey. But then how would that work with Lorraine Bracco? That is, uh, you're right. Uh, Maybe when she was testifying, because I'm sure she's testified too, because she's in witness protection as well. She's definitely guilty of drug charges. I mean, to me, kind of what the narration feels like, and maybe we should play even a little bit of it, Yeah. um, is it feels like, from what I've heard about the relationship between Nicholas and Henry Hill, that they were really tight for a while. You know, for two years, I think Henry Hill would just call him whenever he wanted to. He'd call him at like two in the morning. He'd just be like, mm-hmm. hey, what's up? It's me. I want to talk. I got stories to tell you. I'm bored. I want somebody to hear my stories. I can't tell anybody about my stories. I'm in witness protection. I am losing my mind. And so it seems like Nicholas was his conduit for it. I mean, so much that that's why there's a second movie basically made about Henry Hill at the same I time know. that comes yes. out, My Blue Heaven. Let's actually play the trailer of that really quick. You know, My Blue Heaven, it's written by um, none other than the great Nora Ephron. Being in the witness protection program may save Vinny's life. Boom. I just want you to keep your nose clean. Capiche? You trying to say capiche? Yeah. Well, don't do it because it hurts my ears when you do it. But who's going to save the suburbs from Vinny? You know, it's dangerous for you to be here in the frozen food section. Why is that? Because you could melt all this stuff. The comedy that asks the question, can an urban hood find suburban hood? Would you like to try a vanilla brand oat crunchy? What do you think? Steve Martin, Rick Moranis. Have a nice day. Up yours. I mean, Nora Ephron ends up writing the script because she keeps answering the phone all the times that Henry Hill is calling. And if Nicholas is busy, she has to sit on the phone and he talks to her about his day and he talks to her about the suburbs. And so she's finally like, I'm writing a movie about this guy, too. Fuck it. Like, I have to hear all these stories. I'm going to put them in somewhere. But this is what's kind of great about Henry Hill is Henry Hill would call Howard Stern all the time just to chat, you know, um, and it was a crazy, it's a crazy, like he clearly wants to be this celebrity or he, there's a want, you know, that he, he wants something here. And I think that this movie does a great job of explaining how, uh, how some of these wise guys or good fellows are like, when you see that first story that Joe Pesci is telling about the cop, you know, asking him, like, what does he want to say? He's like, oh, go fuck your mother. And they knock him out. And he goes, you know, hey, you're already back for fucking your mother. Like, did that happen? Probably not. But, or a version of that happened. Like, you know, it's like how I think we all travel in these stories. And I think in, when you're dealing with, like, death and stuff, when we've, we've talked about it on this show, when we, talked to, when we talked on the Godfather episode, is it true? Did this person have sex with Marilyn Monroe eh, the first time? I don't know. I, I think it's all open to... You know, a story is a story, and then all of a sudden it's a bigger story and it gets better. And the best stories that are told are not, you know, exactly how it happened, in my opinion. Well, yeah, but that's not my problem, though. Like, my problem mm-hmm. isn't, that, isn't, isn't that he's, like, buffing it up or changing things. Because at the end of the day, I don't really care about, like, right. Henry Hill and the truth of his story. It doesn't matter to me. Um, yeah. Where I think it becomes a problem is just when Nicholas Plague is trying to take his book and adapt it into a screenplay. Because I think you can see in this film that Nicholas feels so privileged to have all of these things in Henry Hill's own words at a time when Henry Hill was still in hiding, when he hadn't come out yet, 
that he knew where Henry Hill was. He knew, you know, and that most of the guys in this in this story were still alive. They're still in prison. So he had this privileged information that felt really special to him at the time. And I think he can't resist just taking chunks, like verbatim chunks of the stuff that Henry said and just putting it into the script as his narration because he just wants it. He wants to show that he has it. He wants to show it. And I think in showing it, he's not adding that much to the movie because he's not giving us space to kind of go and join. You see, but this is where I disagree with you. I think that this movie is so beautifully paced. And, and I think it's the tracking shots in this film are unbelievable. And the way the camera moves, this movie is like, it's keeping you on, um, on edge in a way. Like, I feel like it launches you into this world. And granted, like the Godfather has no narration. And I felt the same way with that story. You can kind of tell a great story, but I feel like there is, this movie is all about move, 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 driving forward, driving forward, driving forward. So it's like, yes, you're seeing it and we're telling you it and we're going here and we're going here. And it's sort of like, as he's telling her about the Copacabana, we are going through the Copacabana. It's not a silent scene. He's like, I like to go in through this door. This is the way I like to go. You see the champagne get delivered. He's like, oh yeah, I remember that. This is the night that Bobby Darren gave us uh, you know, a bottle of champagne. We're seeing it, but it's also like, it has the element, and this movie does such a great job of this, too, is that overtalk. Everyone's kind of talking. Oh, what are you saying? Oh, yeah. Well, you're saying that? No, you can't say that. But you have to say that. It's like there's just so much banter, and I feel like it's like uh, was it Tommy two times or whatever. It's like we're, it, I think there's a pace to it because Scorsese could have cut out that narration. He didn't need it. He's not going to give a shit what Nicholas Pledge does. He's the director. He's an accomplished, amazing director. But I think all of these choices, the way the camera moves, the way the narration pumps in, everything is about just dr- like barreling this like this truck down the down the road. That's my opinion. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one with the problem here. Maybe it's only me. Maybe only no, Amy no. has the problem here. But I'm saying like there's scenes. Okay, like I want to play the scene at their wedding. You know, we're okay. now we're in Lorraine's head. And the way I'm picking this scene just because I like Lorraine and I was trying to find a good scene with her. We're hearing mm-hmm. her, we're hearing her talk, we're hearing her describe the wedding. And she's complaining about how, or noting, I would say, how there's so many uh, people with the same name. It was like he had two families. The first time I was introduced to all of them at once, it was crazy. Paulie and his brothers had lots of sons and nephews. Paulie, I want you to meet and almost all of them were named Peter or Paul. Peter, this is my brother's second cousin. It was unbelievable. I want you to meet Paulie Jr., my nephew, and this is Petey. There must have been two dozen Peters and Pauls at the wedding. This is Marie. Plus, they were all married to girls named Marie. She's beautiful. Yeah, she looks Italian. Yeah, she looks Italian. You're right. And they named all their daughters Marie. This is Marie. And this is Pete. No, that'd be Paulie. I get confused myself. By the time I finished meeting everybody, I thought I was drunk. I mean, here's the thing for me. It's like, sure, maybe it's just my problem, Paul. Maybe I'm just over here in crazy land. But I want to just see that scene without the voice over it. I want to just oh. see you shaking hands with a bunch of Maries. I want to just see the Maries. I want to just it's listen so to the Maries because funnier. I think it's it would so be so funnier. much I, Maybe it's just me, but in this movie, there are parts when I feel like the narration is so intense that it feels like it doesn't trust me to get the joke. I just want to get the joke on my own, man. I don't need you to tell me the joke and then put, talk over the joke. I just want to be there. Just put me there. Just let me <sighs> put me in, coach. I, I, I understand that. I think that that, like, I think that those scenes really work because I also think it's like, it's not as if he exclusively does that. I think he does a moment here and talk about LeBron Bracco's performance. 
when the when they're kind of searching the house the first time that the her house gets searched you see her signing it and she's like you know some people are rude to these guys i'm always nice i always offer them a cup of coffee we already just saw that but now we're kind of seeing what's going on but what i loved about that scene you're talking about like juxtaposition that you wish you saw i feel that that scene really does show juxtaposition because here we then see her sit down to watch that al jolson uh on the tv and you see in her body that she is frightened out of her mind. Like she is shaking. She does not look well. And, and I love that this movie does do that. And I feel like actually by hearing her narration in that wedding scene, it makes her smarter. And I, and I mean that in the sense of this is a character, and I think Lorraine Bracco talked about this a few times, that could easily have gone by the wayside. This character, like it could have just been a, the the woman in a mafia movie. I think that she brings this character up so much. I think the narration helps do that because she's trying to figure it out. Like when she's, whether she's at that, that first like kind of um, hostess party and you see you're kind of like paying attention to everything, but you're also kind of hearing what's in her head. You get to see these moments of like what's in her head and you go, oh, she's smart, but she can't say it. Like, so yeah, she could be shaking 10 Marie's hands, but to hear her say like, I'm clocking this and it's fucking dumb. These people are like, she's almost saying like these people are dumb and you kind of, I think you gravitate towards her and her character elevates because you get to see how she has to act versus what she's thinking. And I know that they're the same thing to a a little, to a certain extent, but I feel like it actually makes her, her better, a better character. I mean, that's a decent argument for her. I can agree with that. And, And isn't it funny that one of her narrations is basically also the same thing as intolerance? Where she's like, look at all of these ugly women. They drive me nuts. And then the Mm -hmm. camera does exactly what D.W. Griffith does. It shows you all of these women that they believe are like ridiculous looking. Yes. But yeah, no, to your point. I mean, Lorraine said, you know, like, yeah, she was aware, very aware the whole time she was making this that Scorsese, you know, could easily cut her character out if she didn't make that work important. And she would pull some kind of diva stuff on the set. Like when you were in her bedroom. The costume and props team tried to give her fake gold jewelry. And she was like, I am not acting until I get real jewelry. And she made them run and get actual real gold jewelry to put it in her ho- in her room so that she could be like, that's what my character owns. Like, my character is a princess. And I need to stick up for the fact that she's a princess. But, the, but you know, the reason why she did that, too, was because all the guys requested to have real guns. She's like, if you're going to give them real guns, then give me real jewelry. Like, that's what we both need to get in the character. And I love that. Like, I mean, and she is, like you buy that he falls for her. Like that scene where she kind of confronts him in front of the cab company, the way that she comes in from sadness to sassiness. Um, and then, like I said, at the end, like my, my favorite sequence is when they're, when they pull into that, like that little strip mall and they're both going into the store and they're looking around like they, she, she is, I think one of the most dynamic performers in the film, as far as the character changes that, that you see in her. Oh, I think she's hands down the most dynamic. Yeah, I agree. Um, Yeah, I mean, because she comes from like a classier world. You have that scene where they're at a country club and she's instructing uh, him on how country clubs go. Like she's from there. Which is why I I think it's kind of strange that the movie cuts out the real life Henry Hill's greatest tribute to her. Which you know what that is, right? It's alluded to in the film. It's alluded to that he pretends that he's Jewish so that she'll date him and that her parents will get along with him, okay? When they got married, when he was 22, this is a true story, 
Henry Hill agreed to get circumcised so that they could get married. He got circumcised at 22 so that Karen would marry him. That is an amazing detail. Where is that? Don't you want to see that in the movie? Don't you want to see like Pesci busting his balls for getting circumcised at 22? Why isn't that here? That drives me crazy. No, I mean, uh, by the way, I don't know why that's not there. That's, an, I mean, it, it feels like it doesn't track the story the way you want it to, but it's, it's, uh, wow, that's great. Why yeah. is that in my blue heaven? I know. I mean, there's a lot of Karen stuff that didn't make it in. Like, actually, in reality, when he was in prison, Karen was sleeping with Polly. Oh, wow. In the real life scenario of what happened. And while that was going on, Tommy, because he was free, he was like, well, if she's sleeping with Polly, I want some. And so Tommy tries to rape Karen while um, wow. while Henry Hill is still in prison. That's not in the movie either. And I'm, I, it's not that I feel like the movie has to have it, but why not? Blah, blah, blah. But it's a strange choice to take something that high drama and not put it in. I'm curious why that choice was made. I think it starts to make the characters more despicable, right? And they're already despicable, but it's like you got to kind of still love them. And, and on some level, like, I don't know how you can go back to seeing a scene after you see like somebody try. I mean... I don't know. I mean, yeah, you're right. It, like maybe now that movie would that choice would have been made, um, but I think it's a hard sell. I think they're I think they're not sanding the edges off, but I think they are telling a very specific, unique version of the story, a very streamlined version of it. Um, to that point, I just want to bring up one thing, and I'd be remiss if I didn't. Movie is interestingly racist, and and or or I, I maybe I'm using that term wrong i feel like the characters in that movie are are racist and it and it's very much to african americans right like every time uh they use an example of what not to do or who did something wrong it is you know it's always through the idea of like this african american did this or this like you know so there's something really interesting i thought about that did you have any take on that at all yeah i mean they're racist and they're sexist right like they're isolated at least from from trying to even understand people of different races, for the most part, you know that there's really not that many characters in the film. Yeah, it's a very small movie, actually. Surpri- yeah. I mean, even though there's a lot of group scenes, like I mean, it really does exist within small in small confines. I mean, ugh, when you have a scene like say when Stax gets murdered because he doesn't get rid of mm-hmm. the check, really probably the largest profile African American character they have in the whole film. The film, I think. Gives his death weight. You know, there are deaths yes. in this movie that are comic. There are deaths in this movie that are not comic. That's a death where you see his body, where you get, you hear him say that he has a girlfriend. You hear him be nice and be like, oh, can I make you coffee? And they give weight to that death. You know, so even if the guys are racist, the movie is not acting that way. And sometimes yes, though, I, I agree get, with that 100%. Yeah. Sometimes I, I am not sure about how the movie deals with the sexism, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because these characters are also incredibly sexist. And... You know, there's visual jokes where, you know, say when Karen puts the gun in her pocket, she's kind of becoming the man or the the gun in her underwear. She's like becoming the man at that scene. But you could kind of say like a lot of the things that go wrong for him at the end are because the women in his life are frustrating. You know, Debbie Mazar doesn't do the dishes. And because Debbie Mazar doesn't do the dishes, like everybody gets booked. And because like the stoner babysitter girl needs her hat, you know, everything. And I don't think the movie takes much of a stance on, on that. I think it kind of is like, yeah. These women, they can be irritating as hell. Right. And it, it deeply loves Lorraine's character. And I think Lorraine Lorraine sticks up for Karen and the movie accepts Karen. But I, I think it can also be a little dismissive about everybody else. The girlfriends, the things, the girls who just want the nice apartments. 
I guess what I think about it is this, and I agree with you, this film is not racist. I think it's showing racist attitudes through characters that you like sometimes. And that's always a tricky moment because is it, are you making it okay? Or, or are you, you know, we're talking about this idea of like sometimes people parrot what they see in these films. I mean, for me, uh, you know, what am I on the pay no mind list? That has been something that has been said in my family since this movie, you know, like, oh, you get these turns of phrase and stuff like that. But um, I think it's a truthful way of representing these characters. Yeah, you're right. Oh, so, I mean, it's one of those cheeky devil's bargains. Like, would it be better for the film if they were incredibly nice and not racist at all and like a model right. of openness? Like, well, then also, I mean, what do you make about things like, you know, the National Ethnic Coalition of, Organiz- of Organizations calling this movie, quote, the worst thing that's ever been done to Italian-Americans? Is that people, well, you know, like the Order of the Sons of Italy, they asked the country of Italy to cancel giving De Niro and Scorsese Italian citizenship. I mean, that, that, isn't that what happened a little bit with The Godfather? You know, like this, this idea of we need to protest, we need to get in front of it. But in many respects, at the, at the end result actually raises it up. Like, and, that, and that's what I'm talking about. Like this kind of idea of like, this is bad for us, but then the public accepts it in such a way that it becomes the new norm. And it's, 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 um, it's hard. It's hard to distinguish when you like bad people because I think you are rooting for Henry Hill. I think you have to be rooting for him. Yes, he's I, bad, but he, you know, I mean, to a certain degree. I don't think I'm rooting for him. Not because I don't, not because I like, I'm like, you're a bad man. I just yeah. don't, I, he is. You want some, him to get killed or you want him to get away? I guess like, do you want him to get away at the end? No. I think there's okay. something really inhuman and Kendall about Henry Hill to me. You know, he's mm-hmm. just kind of going through the motions of his own life and being such a narcissist that it's not like, oh, I want brimstone on him. I want to see him go down in a hail of gunfire. I'm just like, anything can happen to you. You could get melted by a hot sun. Okay. Like, I can't cry a tear for Henry Hill. And I definitely don't root for him. Not oh, the way that I, I would see. root for somebody like like a Jimmy Cagney. Like in a Jimmy Cagney, gang, Cagney gangster right. movie, I am Jimmy Cagney. Henry Hill, and to me, this is not a complaint about the movie. It's what makes it interesting to me. Henry Hill is not like that. Henry Hill is a deep down broken. And I think I think that the way Ray Liotta plays him gets that. Well, to me, what I love about it is here's a guy who has been let down by his heroes, right? He is now being, you know, he's from, from a very young age. He's done everything that everyone said. He's tried to play it by the rules. He's respected his elders. He's done everything right. And, and this end is him realizing that they're letting him down. And I, 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 there's something so tragic about that. And you're like, well, he did everything right. Like, yes, he got involved in drugs, but they also weren't helping him. And it's like, but you, there's something really sympathetic about this terrible character. And I think that Henry Hill, the real life person, not in the film plays on that too. Like, I'm just a guy, I'm a goofy guy. He's I'm my blue heaven. Like, you know, he's calling up radio stations. like, he, I'm Kato Kalen. It's all right. Why are you right. being mean? I, Why am I a joke? And there is something about that. I'm just, I, I'm kind of just, I don't know if I totally have an opinion on it. I just think it's, uh, there is something incredibly likable about this murderer. Like he's a straight up murderer, but like you don't feel it. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but I, I think know. when you get a real moment of reality in this movie, is one of the best performances in the entire film, um, is the head of the um, the witness protection program, when they have that meeting, that scene is so good. And it's the first moment 
in my opinion, where reality comes into the world of Goodfellas. Like all of a sudden we're in their world and then we pop out and we're in the real world. And this, uh, this guy, it's uh, Edward McDonald playing himself. He is the guy. He's U.S. attorney Edward McDonald who put them into witness protection. And I think he plays That's that scene. That's the actual guy? The actual guy. <laughs> and he plays that scene so fucking, I was watching that scene last night and I was like, who is this actor? He's so good. Cause it's like, he's playing comedy beats and just watching him react to them. And I think that this movie does a lot of great moments like that. You said that like maybe Pledgy is too committed to, to uh, Henry Hill. But I also say that it gives De Niro the idea on how to hold the ketchup uh, because, you know, uh, his character would hold it between both hands and kind of rub it out. Like you'd rub Play-Doh. And, and here's the guy who actually put Henry Hill Oh, you know, in witness protection, like he's putting a lot of truth around it. And, 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 and these little flourishes that I think make this film, like, I don't think it will ever be the Godfather. Cause I think the Godfather still is majestic and it's a very Hollywood movie. This is a much more dirty film, you know, in a good way. Uh, but it's, um, there is something like, I just love those little elements throughout the whole film. I mean, the other, one of my other ba- favorite things I've been dying to talk to you about this is the wigs, the Maury wigs commercial. You know yes, the whole story I, about that? Yeah, this is actually my favorite little flourish in the film. Okay, great. Well, the, the, then walk me into it, because I then I'll just chime in on top of you. Okay, okay, okay. Well, first, maybe we should just play the Maury ad, because it's unbelievable. Okay, great. Don't buy wigs that come off at the wrong time. Maury's wigs don't come off, even underwater. And remember, Maury's wigs are tested against... Hurricane winds. Don't forget about money. You can afford a Maury wig. Price to fit every budget. So call me now. And come in for a personalized fitting. Okay, so if we can go down a tiny tear of vintage TV ads, we can do that. And I bet you actually know these because you were living in the area. So there was a real Maury. His name was Marty. He did have a wig shop. It was called For Men Only. I managed to find one of their ads from before he was killed or disappeared. This is an, an original... For men only ad. Five Minnelland Avenue in Garfield, New Jersey has been specializing in custom hairstyling for young men who care about their look. Whether you have a full head of hair, unruly hair, or a thinning receding hairline, For Men Only will transform your look into one that will make you be proud of you. Our salon has been established for 10 years with six operators at all times to assure fast, dependable service. On Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, $35 perms are only $25. Call 546-5007 for your appointment today. But this ad, of course, is not quite as cool. So how did they get an ad as cool as that one? Mm -hmm. Well, while they were getting ready to make this film, Scorsese was watching a lot of TV, and he came across ads for a window company that was called Alco. And he got obsessed with this one ad. Picture, if you can, a very awkward man standing there, money being blown through windows, girls in bikinis for no reason. Picture this Alco ad, even though it sounds a little dry in audio. Homeowners, get new windows for your entire home for $65 a month. Don't worry about money. No money down. No payments for up to four months. Alco pumps four inches of insulation on both sides of your new windows free. Alco's four inches of insulation saves more heat than any ordinary installation. Alco has all the best features. Buy four windows, get the fifth one free. Free bonus with your order. Call now for free estimate or free booklet. Alco will not be undersold. Amy, you just brought me back. That commercial is my life. I watch that commercial nine million times. 
Like that was on WPIX, my channel 11. So I was watching like different strokes reruns and that's popping on. I, I, that the filling the insulation on either side of the window. Oh, I remember that so clearly. <laughs> that's crazy. I didn't realize that that was what it was based on that one. Oh no, it wasn't even just based on that one. Okay. So the guy, Steven Arpaca, who's in that ad, he is the director of the Maury's commercial within the film. Not that only is the director, happened. the writer and the editor of it. <laughs> Like, like, like Scorsese is like, go make a commercial. Go make a commercial. And Scorsese had a really hands-off approach. He's like, here, go take this, make this ad. And I mean, his lighting director was there as they were shooting the scene. He was like, oh man, this is not going to be lit well. Well, that's fine. I'm here just to observe and not play any part of making this look better because it has to look like the real deal. And this is also uh, a moment that is kind of familiar to Scorsese as didn't he have his dad shoot the the wedding sequence in Raging Bull, like on the rooftop because he was sick that day? Like, like I think he's sometimes fine with like having somebody come in because when I watched that scene, I was like, oh, this commercial's great. Like, what is this thing? I was like, oh, wait, that they must have shot this from the movie. I was like, oh, he's a genius. So he recreated this commercial very much like Quentin Tarantino does in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like really down to the, to the brass tacks of like what these things look and felt like. But he did it one step further. He just hired the people who made those ads to make an ad, and it's so good. That ad is so good. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, especially given the fact that the guy who's playing Maury is not even a really an actor himself. I mean, the guy who's playing Maury is Chuck Lowe, and Chuck Lowe is just Robert De Niro's landlord. And the whole story is wow. Robert De Niro, he would just keep going to De Niro and be like, can you put me in another movie? Can you put me in another movie? So he has a fair amount of credits on IMDb that he racked up before he died, but they're pretty much all movies with, with De Niro in it, if you look closely. You know, he's in King of Comedy. He's in Once Upon a Time in America. He's in Sleepers. So Scorsese, in the middle of this movie that's very important to him, outsources my favorite part to a guy who's not an actor and a guy who's not a director. To which I would say, if he can do all of that, maybe he could have found a young guy who could have been Tommy. Oh, man. You know, <laughs> there's so much cool little things like this in the film. And I think I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about this one sequence at the end of the film, which is an homage to the great train robbery, right? This is the, uh, this is uh, Tommy. This is the Joe Pesci character um, firing his gun at the camera for no reason. Um, and that's, and what do you make of that scene? I don't know. I mean, it, it ends the movie on such a punch, right? Because I don't, I'm not really that interested in is this glamorizing or not, blah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. But when you end on that, you're kind of like, oh, Tommy's pretty cool after all. It does end on kind of like giving Tommy a fist bump. What I think is even stranger is the song that he immediately starts to play. And I pulled a little mm. clip of it. Oh, um, before, we get, before we get into that, can I, can I just, I want to just tackle one thing on this. Yeah. Do you think that there's an element and a spoiler alert, if you've not seen the finale of The Sopranos, of the last image that you will ever see if you are, you know, going to be killed or be in the, in the mafia is someone pointing a gun at you. Like this idea, like, yes, Tommy is the, the visualization of it, but like, that's the last image that you'll ever see. And, it, and I think that The Sopranos does a great job at the, the final thing, like the paranoia of who's coming in, what's going on, like, what, what is this final moment? I think there's something about that being like, that's the end of the movie because now I'm shooting you. You're done. Oh, that's I don't interesting. Know. 
Yeah, I was thinking about that, but I don't know, you know. Um, but yes, let's go talk about the end. I don't yeah. know. I mean, I guess it's easier to visualize that than it is like you're sitting in the front seat of car. No, no, you're being choked from behind. Right, which right, is, yeah. I think the death I see just as much at these movies. Oh, the most violent one is the fucking ice pick in the back of the skull. I was like, oh, it's ah. so, so rough. <laughs> I mean, to me, what I find strange is, you know, the song that immediately plays after that, because then the outro of this entire movie is a Sid Vicious version of the Frank Sinatra song, My Way. Mm-hmm. I think it's a weird choice, and I want to talk about it. Like, I can understand intellectually for Scorsese why I wanted to pick that, because he actually called this movie, you know, like a punk rock attitude that he wanted to show. You know, he's got these quick cuts. He's got this too much narration. He was like, you know what? I don't care if there's too much narration. Too many quick cuts, that's too bad. It is that kind of punk rock attitude we're trying to show. But I do think it's a weird choice. because Well, but I it's mean, not his choice. That, that movie was, because it's like he wanted Sinatra to do my way. Sinatra said, no, you can't have the rights to that song, not in this movie. Okay, and then he was just forced into this song? No, he makes a choice. He plays this song. He's not, nobody just slaps this song on without it being like, okay. But I think, like, if you go, there is an element of what he wanted from that song. Whatever that song is saying, you know, which I think it, it does, it's a very interesting song, and especially for these characters, right? It's like, these characters are the embodiment of that song. And so I think he has it in his head. That's what I want. And when he can't get Sinatra, he's like, fuck it, I'll get this Sid Vicious one. And yeah, you can kind of go, well, it works kind of for the movie. But if his in his original intention, because we know that like he's seeing Layla, he's seeing the creams, like he's seeing all these moments through song that he can't get away from. He's like, fuck, I, I, I know I want to end on this. And he ends on that. And I agree with you. It's a little bit weird. It took me out. I was like, oh. But I think the what he's trying to convey with it overtook if it worked or not. Because I don't think it does work, is the thing. I mean, mm. yes, like, chrono- chronologically, it works out. You know, Henry Hill's put in prison around the time that that song comes out. You know, it, it fits timestamp-wise, but you can't tell me for a second that this Henry Hill we've spent time with at all would listen to the Sex Pistols or punk rock. His wife is watching Al Jolson. Like, there's nothing no. in this moment that Henry Hill would relate to. Henry Hill wouldn't be but like... But if he's a young 20-year-old, like you would imagine, then this would be right up his alley, Amy. But he's, he's not in this film. He's not in the logic of this film. He's not. Like, he, Henry Hill is a guy who would beat up the Sex Pistols or be like, we got to whack those guys. They don't look like yeah. menly men. They shouldn't be around here dressing like that. They can't wear a suit. What's their problem? He has no relationship to, sex, to, to the Sex Pistols, to Sid Vicious. So it is a weird choice. It's like, yeah, my movie's got this energy, but the movie doesn't really have this energy. I, look, I'm not going to die on this one. I, 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 think that the, uh, I think that the intent of the song is right. It, it's memorable, but I don't know if I quite loved it, if that makes sense. Well, it's interesting that that's that Sinatra wouldn't let him use that. I thought that was really interesting too. Like at this point, like Sinatra would be like, "No, no, you can't use my music." Well, then let's go to the hill that uh, you will probably die on, and that I will probably get executed on, yeah. which I'm nervous <laughs> about getting to. Which All is right, which, yes. that I think the last thirty minutes of this movie are technically well executed, and absolutely some. Thrown in Hail Mary pass that does not fit anything about the character of Henry Hill. And it drives me insane. What? What do you mean? Go tell me. I want to hear it. Okay. Okay. 
First, I just want to play two little clips. This is just Henry Hill setting up his day. Everything he's got to do in this quick clip. I was going to be busy all day. I had to drop off some guns at Jimmy's to match some silencers he had gotten. I had to pick up my brother at the hospital and drive him back to the house for dinner that night. And then I had to pick up some new Pittsburgh stuff for Lois to fly down to some customers I had near Atlanta. Right away, I knew he didn't want them. I knew I was going to get stuck for the money. I only bought the damn guns because he wanted them, and now he didn't want them. What the fuck are these things? They're not no fit. What's the matter with you? What do you want me to pay for this shit? I'm not paying for it. I didn't say a thing. Jimmy was so pissed off, he didn't even say goodbye. Stop with those fucking drugs. They're making your mind into mush. You hear me? Take them back. So what do we know about his day? We know he's got to run around. We know he's got to get drugs. We know this. But he's also got to do two things that get wedged into this scene and make it really high stakes and dramatically and emotionally important, which is he has to pick up his brother and bring his brother to his house for the day. And he's got to make a lot of food. See, I was cooking dinner that night. I had to start braising the beef, pork butt, and veal shanks for the tomato sauce. And tomatoes. Hey, I'm going to make them all. I'm going to make all this meat. It was Michael's favorite. I was making ziti with the meat gravy, and I'm planning to roast some peppers over the flames, and I was going to put on some string beans with some olive oil and garlic, and I had some beautiful cutlets that were cut just right that I was going to fry up before dinner just as an appetizer. Right, so I was home for about an hour. Now, my plan was to start the dinner early so Karen and I could unload the guns that Jimmy didn't want and then get the package for Lois to take to Atlanta for her trip later that Who's night. Who's been their initials in the tomato? No, I kept looking out the window and I saw that the helicopter Karen? was gone. Michael, keep an eye on the sauce, all right? Stay here with your Uncle Michael, all right? I'll see you later. So I asked my brother Michael to watch the sauce and Karen and I started out. And I, this is just nonsense in two ways. One, his brother, who's suddenly super important to him for only the last part of this entire movie that he has to have over at the house, he has to yell at him about how to, kick, how, to, how, to, how to have the sauce made done right. This brother hasn't been referred to or seen in the film since like minute six. That's the last time you hear him even referred to. He, he hasn't even been seen in the film since minute four. You see him briefly, minute four, mention him once at minute six. We're two hours later in the movie and like, oh, my brother coming over. Most important thing in my life. Got to make sure he's over. I got to go pick him up. Got to go pick him up. What? What? Like, what is this? I mean, if part of this whole movie is that Henry Hill isn't that great at being at home. He's out all the time. He's not home with his wife. Blah, 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 blah. He's got his mistresses. Now he's a big family guy. What's this about? Amy. Amy, Amy, Amy. I mean, come on now. This is his brother. Like, look, we we cut his out the very circumc- important brother. We, we cut out the circum. We cut out the circumcision. I think for me, what I see in this is him trying to do it all. He is unraveling. Right. We're not seeing the day in and day out of this character. He's not like murdering people every day. He's living, I think, ultimately a respectable kind of normal life. Uh, for the most part, like even when the Lufthansa heist happens, he hears about it on the radio in the shower. Like, you know, he's not like meeting up late night. Like, I think there's an element of this character that is, is normal, right? And, and it's mixing in these normal things with these heightened things. And this movie isn't about a normal guy hiding. It. It's not married to the mob or whatever, you know, it's like, so I do believe that like, yes, 
family obligations come in there. And he's trying to make dinner. And I love that that timestamp is 1054. They're eating dinner at 1054. Like he's trying to do it all. He's so fucking coked up. He's like, I got the, I got the chicken cutlets. I'm going to make that as an appetizer. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to make over here. Like he's, it's him. That's not who he is. That's not who he is. That's not who this character is that we have seen this entire time. He's the guy who's never at home when everybody else makes his meals for him. He's not the guy who cares. But this is why. I'm trying to separate. But this is a different. Here, right? but this is a different the character part. of Henry Hill as a person to... who might exist. The whole yes. life he has outside of who he is. There's the character. Okay, no. But then, <laughs> but then there's the Henry Hill who we've been given to in this movie, and it's a guy who doesn't give a shit about his brother because he hasn't brought him up in two but, hours. He's grown up. But, Decades but, have but, gone by. I don't remember seeing his brother at the wedding. Who cares? Now suddenly his brother matters. I just think that's weird screenwriting. Oh, well, my brother's most important thing. Pop it in last No, 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 no. It's not, for, for, first of all, it's not the brother is the most important thing. We have to take two things at play. He's got to pick him up. Are, He's making money. He let, can't go make a guy pick his brother let up me at least, him. He's had Attack people my go point cut once wine I make from it. in the grocery Att- store. Okay. Here, I just have one point to make. I have one point. Okay. Get a cab. Let me make my one point. He's got money for a cab. He's a guy who tips the cabbie excessively. Okay, I'll stop. He gets out of jail. He is now on a downward spiral since he's gotten out of jail. His life is not going that great. All right, so he probably is spending a little bit more time at home. First of all, his brother, his family, from all we know, it's the only living relative that he has is getting out of the hospital and he seems to be paralyzed so he was in a wheelchair what, when he was a kid was he in the wheelchair back then yeah the last okay. thing you've heard right. is i mean like and i got the kid in the wheelchair as he's beating him up oh right 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 all right i just believe that all of these people make time for family at one point and i feel like what i love about that scene is something that's so relatable which is like I'm in the middle of doing something very, very important, but I need to also make time for this other thing that is a family thing. And I can say that, not that I'm running drugs, but there has been days when I have to make sure that I'm like watching some sort of school kindergarten recital or graduation. Like here, for example, like I needed to shoot, I was shooting a movie and I got out in time to get on a plane and get back to make my kids preschool. I mean, yes. And I'm committed to my kids, but like, there's just like these obligations to family that overtake everything. And I feel like it's like, what are you going to send a cab for me and your brother? Take me home. And I feel like there's, it's clearly happened. It doesn't mean that we have to see like three scenes in the film. You know, we see him at home uh, multiple times. Like he has an okay relationship with Lorraine Bracco. Like, you know, they, they, you know, it's like, we're not, but that's not the movie. Like the movie is the only reason why that's important is because that happens at the end of the movie. It's real. And it's like, oh, my last day of being a gangster, this is all the shit that went down. That all of a sudden becomes important, wherein throughout the whole movie, his relationship with the brother isn't important. It has nothing to do with the story of the movie. It only comes in play on the last day. Like, do we care about the fucking lucky hat? No, it's just important in that last moment. So that's why I think, like, I can forgive that he's not in it since minute four because it doesn't make a difference. It's only about... It's not like, oh, all of a sudden in the last act, he's like, me and my brother hang out all the time. He's like, no, no. It's on the last day. He happened to agree to pick up his brother and he's doing this thing, trying to keep a normalcy in the family. That's why I believe it's important. I, I, if this was the Paul Shear story, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I would believe it for a second because you are a guy who makes time for your family. What I'm saying is in this character, all we've seen from what we've seen of this character put in the movie 
is that he doesn't care about his family. Lorraine even says at one point, Not you've been gone for two wife. weeks. His she says wife. that. Nope. She says at one point, you've been gone for two weeks. He can, he's his the guy wife, who's not capable. His blood. Not his blood. His blood he cares about, He's Amy. capable of disappearing on his family, which includes his blood children. For he weeks. loved it. He Suddenly loved, he's picking up his brother. He loved that they carried groceries for his mom. He, this is one of the things that he says is great about being a mobster. He could have done anything on his last day. Like, he could have gotten his shoes shined. And you'd be like, well, it doesn't make sense. He never got his shoes shined during the whole movie. It's like, no, but it just happened to be. If you told me, like, this is, like, if you, if you tracked my yesterday, I don't think it would, like, line up with my last two months. It would just be like, oh, we happened to do that. Like, we went on a bike ride yesterday. I haven't gone on a bike ride in, like, months. Like, it, but you wouldn't be like, well, why wasn't he on the bike all the time in the movie? It's like, it just happened to be that yesterday I went on a bike ride. Okay, no, but I'm saying I think it's flimsy screenwriting that I have an issue with because it's put in the movie not as a randomness, but as a way of giving the day stakes. His day is so full and it's full with things that the movie suddenly finds of value, cooking and family, things that have never been of value to this character up until this point. And I find it really strange. If the day eating, was structured around- Eating is a big deal. Eating is yes, a huge yes. deal for this character. He likes to eat. He has never cooked in this movie once. In the prison scene, when everybody's slicing garlic, he's just bringing in groceries. He's not cooking. He's not a cook. We have never seen him care about cooking this entire movie. I feel like I feel like food is such a big part of like Italian culture, and everyone's always cooking in a part of the kitchen. I'm saying, as an audience member, I don't buy it. If you told me uh, his whole day was I like, disagree. I gotta run here and do this thing for Polly. If he was running errands all day for Jimmy, sure. Sure, sure, no, sure. No, him, because it did. no. But so much of this scene is suddenly him caring about the way a pasta sauce has been made, giving no evidence that he has any. But it's just—it seems nonsense to me. So you That's think that's supposed to make you, us worry? Like, think, oh, I hope the pasta sauce is okay. You think what? that you you uh, okay? You think that Jimmy and Henry and, and and Tommy all have no life outside of the mafia world because we see them like having fun on the couch, uh, going to Hawaii, going on vacation, like they clearly do stuff. It's just not part of the movie. This person is not a monolith that is not changing. He is, there are days that he is home. There are days when he's not home. There are two weeks when he's not home. Doesn't mean I, that he's been a bad father. Doesn't no, mean that he's never he's home. He's of course a bad father. His, his kids have written a book about what a bad father he is. I, but, I mean, I didn't want to say without, without just you know, mm-hmm. going and doing my research that he is not a cook. So I did look. He has written a cookbook. He did care. I'm, I'm not going to say it's a cash. Well, 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 he made a pasta no. sauce, didn't he? Because I remember yeah. him selling it at Howard Stern. Yeah. yeah. Fuck yeah. yeah. I, uh, all right. But I'm saying that's not the character in the movie. And I am saying I went looking for videos. He of is him the cooking. character. Well, it's not in a movie. That's not him. He you is want a guy Netflix, who, you want see you want in a two hour and forty minute movie you want more scenes of cooking him just making sauce. I'm saying it's not organic to the character as we have him. Here's the thing: he's able to he's easily eager to sacrifice time with his family every other minute of this movie. All he ever does is sacrifice time with his family the entire rest of the movie. Suddenly, it he can't. Suddenly, in this one day, he can't. I'm just saying it's crazy. But I did pull for you a okay. clip of the real Henry Hill. Making a pasta sauce for a dude in his apartment. This is after this is after he's um, unloosened, I suppose. This is in the mm-hmm. late two thousands. Yeah, he got out of witness protection because they yeah. kicked him out. Yeah, he invites a guy over. He's watching him uh, make pasta sauce. But I will say the whole backdrop here of this entire clip is basically that Henry Hill is supposed to be sober, 
And it's his kids realizing that he's not sober and everybody getting mad at him the whole time because he's pouring wine, hiding pictures of wine in the cabinet, pretending that he poured all the wine down the sink and that the wine is only for the pasta sauce. He still doesn't seem like that big of a cook. Let's listen. What is it? Wine cream and soda. Cream soda. Yeah. I do mind, Henry. Stop your cooking, get in your car, and fucking go. And come back when you're sober. sober. Next week, tomorrow, a month from now, I don't care. You're not sober. Look at your fucking eyes. Look at your fucking attitude. I ain't doing it. So that's Henry Hill cooking. That sizzling you hear is him making, I I believe, some sort of a, a, a schnitzel. I honestly feel like your two big nitpicks about this movie are are such interesting hang-ups about the movie like i'm not i'm not devaluing them but they're so minute that they've taken you out of the movie it kind of is shocking to me it's not like it's like the age and the brother like it's like what these are the things no they are you're reframing them in a shallow way they are deeply fundamental they are fundamental (laughs) because both of these things say who the characters are and i think that by Casting, okay, casting Pesci, who's two and a half times as old as he should be to play this character of Tommy, two and a half times, two and a half times as old as he should be to play this character. It just shows that that when it comes down to it, Scorsese is willing to pick the more fun performance over the better performance, over the truer performance, that he doesn't care too much about really who Tommy is and what Tommy represented because he wants the, the Pesci performance. He's willing to make that trade-off, and I think it's a bad choice. And then I I'm think willing, in this last I'm willing section, to make he's willing to reframe everything about who Henry Hill is, everything he's presented about who Henry Hill is, to have this kind of memorable, flashy 30-minute sequence that actually doesn't seem like it has that much to do with the character. I'm just saying that's two big character issues, and it cheapens okay. the movie for me. I think it's, I right, think it's bad right. choices. Like the Joe Pesci performance, and I think you even saw this a little bit with Irishman. When he chooses to act, which is rare— uh, Gone Fishing being one of the best examples of this. He brings home uh, an Academy Award-winning performance. No, he, I think he, I think he's like, um, when he really gets into a character, he does an amazing job at that character. I, as a, as somebody who's directed, as someone who's acted, I think sometimes you have to say like, fuck how I view this character or how this character is. I want the best version of this character. I want the best you know, obviously De Niro is like a shoo-in, but Pesci maybe not a shoo-in because he gave De Niro both choices. And and there's a lot of people that were up for this part. Uh, I'll read you some of these names, which are actually pretty interesting. Um, I just think that you would always go, I think you always go for for, for Lawrence. Um, but the here. best version, so. even when it screws up the whole concept of how old you're supposed to be when you're a made guy and what it means to look like a, a young hotshot. Would it be, I mean, he look, Paulie the, the literally can... calls Tommy a bad seed. That means you're a child. He calls him a bad seed and he's 47. I don't think that that's the truth. I don't think that that is the only reason I call it bad seed. Uh, the people that he considered for Jimmy Conway uh, was Al Pacino, Malkovich, and William Peterson. All of them in the same age group. Like, in his mind, he saw this movie. Malkovich is much younger. Is he that younger? Yeah. Let me do the math on that. Hold on. Malkovich is a full decade younger than Pesci. Well, there you go. Which actually would have worked. Which actually, uh, then you'd at least understand that they're peers instead of it suddenly seeming like they're not peers. Same age and then magical time loop. I'm 10 years older than you. All right. Well, uh, Amy, we're never going to fully agree on this, but I, I, I do value you and your opinions on this movie. And like I said... When I heard you on the canon a long time ago, five years ago, um, you definitely opened my eyes to things in this movie that 
uh, are worthy of discussion. Like, I, I think that everything that you've brought up uh, is worthy to be noted. I think, though, that the greater good of what those issues are outweighs them, in my opinion. And I'm saying it is absolutely okay to love this movie. Absolutely okay. Love this movie. I love Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Love that movie. Love that movie. I'm not saying that movie should be on the AFI Top 100 list. I'm not saying a movie with this many strange script choices should be on the AFI Top 100 list. And I think the fact that it's in the 90s gives me hope that it will go down. So you're saying it should be off the list? I just think it should be 100% be off the list. Not just because I think it has a lot of structural flaws, but because also this is the fourth mobster movie. Here's the thing. This is the fourth mobster movie we got on the list. And I'm kind of like, who cares? Name Yes, sure. We've got Godfather 1, Godfather 2, and On the Waterfront. And then a touch of it in Some Like a Hot, but I don't really count that. And I'm just saying, like, sure, I could even understand the argument that Goodfellas is more true to the experience of what it's like to be an Italian-American in a mafia family than The Godfather is. But I still don't care. Because I don't understand why mafia stories have to take up this much cultural landscape in our life. Four movies about what it's like to be in the mob on this list. We don't have a single movie about, like, astronauts. Single movie about astronauts. I'd give up any of these movies for an astronaut movie. Well, because, right. because you know, uh, astronauts, definitely, there's as many astronauts as there are people in the mafia. I'm saying it's more relevant to my life. Listen, yes, you're from New York. I'm from Texas. Mafia doesn't mean anything to me. Okay, sure, mafia. I think we need to let the mafia and by the go. way, are you are, by the way, are you saying that 2001 is not an astronaut movie? Oh, good point. All right, I'll take that. Cool. I'm going to say that Josh brought that to my attention. I don't want to take full credit for that. <laughs> All right. We got an astronaut movie. Excellent. Good. We still have too many mafia movies. Fuck. <laughs> There's more Americans um, in this country than mafia people. Um, well, how about this, Amy? I, I would say this. I would replace Godfather 2 with this. I do believe it belongs on the list. I think that this movie um, captures a very definitive view of... The Mafia, I think that like if you go On the Waterfront, Godfather, and this, those are three very different films, three very different views of how it presents itself and how people can get sucked in and how it can affect them. I, uh, I think each one is, is worthy. I think On the Waterfront is a beautifully done film. I think Godfather uh, 1 is really perfection. I think Godfather 2 and this talk to each other a little bit to a certain extent, you know. And, and, and Godfather 2 almost talks a little bit to On the Waterfront 2 to a certain extent. You know, we'll see. Uh, but I would pick this. If you could only have three, that would be my three. I would go Godfather, On the Waterfront, and this. I think, uh, I also believe this is one of the best Scorsese's on the list. I just do. I think it's, it is an encapsulation of everything that he does incredibly well. I love Taxi Driver. I think Taxi Driver is a really amazing film and I think that this movie is kind of him at the height of his power. So I think this is like, this is, you know, he didn't want to make one, but he did make one and he kind of made his best version of one. And then he finally made another one too. But um, I think there's something really unique about this movie. The alchemy of this movie is very, very special. I'm saying I could cut all the gangster movies from this list, but The Godfather and On the Waterfront, and I would still sleep really well at night. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's talk about cooking a little bit more. Uh, we've kind of alluded to it a few times about how cooking in this film is an undercurrent. And now clearly you don't believe it's an undercurrent with Henry Hill. But there is uh, an amazing chef that uh, we are bringing on today to talk a little bit about the history of pasta and making a simple sauce, and a sauce that you can actually make here in quarantine. He has a brand new show on Quibi called The Shape of Pasta. Uh, please welcome Chef Evan Funky. So Evan, I love your Quibi series that you have going on right now. Uh, and you have, are you a custodian of Italian tradition? And, uh, and as, you're, as the website says, a master of old world techniques of handmade pasta. You, uh, I feel like you have an insight that we may not know, I think, about this food that I think so many of us eat all the time, and uh, but we don't really think about because it's sort of like it's a staple of our, our, our diet in many ways. Yeah, you know, um, pasta is very much woven into the fabric of America um, since the uh, great immigration from uh, mostly southern Italy at the turn of the century. Pasta has been a mainstay a cornerstone of of American cuisine. I would never call myself a master of anything. I I I am a student of uh, of pasta, of its history, of its of its anthropology. I've kind of offered myself for the past decade plus as kind of like this this godson uh, of pasta to these pasta makers throughout the peninsula of Italy, um, and they're all women, uh, and they all have extraordinary family histories. Uh, and typically, you know, these women have been making a single shape since they were like six years old. So they are absolute masters uh, of this singular shape. Pasta will be my masterpiece uh, for my life. It'll be my legacy that I leave behind. I, I love this. And you, you, you had a documentary, uh, which was just funky, uh, right? Uh, which was yeah. in 2018. When I saw that, like the idea that, you know, when you see like Jiro dreams of sushi, like that seems like this art, and we forget this art of pasta because it is, I think, uh, accessible to us or it seems simple. But this idea that people have been working on this since they were children, they're really like, they are rarely masters of their domain. And I guess maybe my question is, is there ever a bad pasta? Can you, is there, <laughs> is there bad pasta? Yeah. There's not bad pasta, just bad execution, you know? Um, the, the, one of the most beautiful things that I found, uh, you know, doing this is that any pasta shape that you can find in the grocery store, whether it's dried or fresh, uh, has an ancestral shape that was at one time made by hand by a woman to feed their family. And the plethora of shapes were really born out of a necessity to feed one's family from very meager means, flour and water. And I mean, what would you do if you were put in that position? Okay, we have to eat flour and water again. What would you do right. to keep things fresh and creative? You would 
Find new ways to realize that you're eating the same shit every day. So that's where all of these thousands and thousands of shapes are really born out of that that forced ingenuity and the necessity to feed feed your family. And it's so diverse because of all the, you know, Italy was not unified until the late 1800s. And you have these very small city-states, kind of city-states that are spread out from all over the place. And they all have their very, very deeply rooted culinary traditions that are still alive and well today. I mean, that idea of, of being limited, of being stuck, it has kind of a nice parallel to what we see here in Goodfellas, which is the men in prison. Right. Having to figure out how to make a delicious meal while they're stuck in there, which I feel, at least for myself, I can relate to now, like, even more. You know, I'm stuck inside. How can I cook? What can I eat? What can I do to make my meals more interesting? And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just kind of juicing up my brain a little bit, like sharing a recipe for making a really good tomato sauce. Honestly, simple, simplicity is is your your starting point. If you can find a good can of San Marzano tomatoes, I love Dinapoli tomatoes. My my uh, chef friend Chris Bianco uh, is a partner in that. It's exceptional. They're grown in California. Alta Cucina is also grown in California. It's what I use at Felix. Um, any kind of canned or imported uh, plum tomatoes are perfectly fine. So find that something with low acidity. Get some garlic. <clears throat> you can find garlic anywhere. Please don't use garlic powder. It's an absolute blasphemy. Um, <laughs> is, is there any advantage to slicing the garlic thin with a razor blade? Okay, so in, in my opinion, Italians, Italians love garlic, but they also like the ability to take garlic out of a dish so that it's not too strong. That's not to say that I haven't found very garlic-heavy things in Italy, but the use of garlic and onions, the prominence of that is really American Italian cooking. And if you, if you go back to the turn of the century when there was a great migration here, there weren't Italian uh, products in the United States in the 1900s and the 1920s. So they basically did what they have done for thousands and thousands of years, and they they were very creative. They had to uh, provide for their families, so they used what was around them. Italians are very specific that way, where they cook with specifically with what's around them and what's in, in season. So when they came to America, there wasn't you know dried pasta, there wasn't, but there was flour. So they were forced back into this kind of cottage industry um, of making pasta and making sauces from what was around them. And there's actually a funny, th- uh, a funny little scene in, uh, in Goodfellas where uh, De Niro's adding ketchup to his spaghetti when after they, uh, they whack out that guy and he's in the trunk and they go to Scorsese's mom's house, he's putting yeah. ketchup on his spaghetti. So that gives us kind of like mindset where like they had to use ketchup because that was the only canned tomato product that they had uh, when they first got here. So back to the recipe. If you get some dried pasta, whatever you want, um, spaghetti or rigatoni or fusilli or uh, you know farfalle, whatever, canned tomatoes, garlic, and marjoram if you can find it. Marjoram is a cousin, a softer and more genteel cousin to oregano. Oregano is very strong, very kind of musky, but marjoram has this beautiful kind of softness and and it's much more genteel and olive oil. And that's it. So if you start in like a medium sauce pot on medium heat, 
add some olive oil until it starts to kind of shimmer. We call it applause. You're going to smash the garlic once you've peeled it, put it into the olive oil and fry it until you start to see a little bit of color. And then throw your picked marjoram or your dried, you know, oregano, which is perfectly fine. And then you're going to fry that for about 15 seconds until it becomes aromatic and then add the tomatoes. And that's it. Literally wow. bring it up to temperature and then let it simmer. You can mash it up with a, a wooden spoon or like a potato mash or something like that. Add a little bit of salt and that is it. How long would you let it simmer? Because I feel like I hear really polarized opinions on this. For sure. And, and that's the one thing about, well, not one of the things about Italy is that we we're talking about these city states. Each, each region, each city, each commune, each household has its own traditions. And its diversity is literally unmatched in the world, probably maybe in China, but it's really about whose grandmother you're talking to. You know, you could go to my maestra, Alessandra Spizni in Bologna, right? She makes Bolognese ragu from, you know, seven ingredients. And she's going to swear up and down to Jesus Christ that if you don't have these seven <laughs> ingredients in the Bolognese, it's not Bolognese. But then you go next door and they tell you something completely different and swear up and down to Pope John Paul II that if you don't have these 10 ingredients, it's not Bolognese. So the traditions and the authenticity is very, very personal. So you... You're gonna get conflicting. Uh, you're gonna get conflicting results from whoever you ask. What would you say? I, I would say some somewhere in the middle. To be honest, if you're using canned tomatoes, you know when's the best time to serve a ragu is when it's done, and uh, you, you wanna you're shooting for balance, and that's why choosing the ingredients is such an incredibly important part of Italian cooking. Shopping is shopping well and knowing how to choose produce and products is, is for, you know, rule number one, rule number one, shop well, don't buy shit because you can't make chicken soup out of chicken poop. So you have to literally buy the best that you can possibly find. And then just basically try not to fuck it up. That's Italian cooking in a nutshell. What I'm really taking away from this is the chef is as a big of a part of the recipe as the recipe to a certain degree. And I think that like, because everyone is doing it different. It's like, what do you like? What does your family like? How do you want to feed your family? And, and, and there's, I think there's a, at least in my, I grew up in an Italian family and both sides cooked very differently, but they were both equally delicious. For sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate and it's my great privilege to be kind of this very small cog in a massive wheel that's, that, you know, basically spans, uh, you know, a couple thousand years. And I'm just a part of, uh, 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 you know, I'm a, I'm a tuning fork. All I'm doing is capturing uh, this story, this personal history of a shape of a woman and trying to pass it on to whoever might listen to it. I'm calling you the Indiana Jones of pasta. You're going around, you're finding these varietals, you're holding them. These belong in a museum. Like, you know, that's what, that's what you're, you're, you're putting them in a museum. You're holding them back. I mean, my grandma has a book. She's 91 years old and all of her recipes are in there. And it's, yep. and it's like a handwritten book that I feel like I saw when I was five years old. It's still the same book that is there now. And I, and I love it. I love that. old man. You know, that, that is a treasure. Well, it's like it, it that, that, when she makes something, I, I remember bringing my wife over there for the first time and, and she made us, you know, like a pasta and clam sauce and linguine and clam sauce. And it was just, 
just unreal. It's but you know, I also have a flavor for what I grew up with, which is also you know a, a part of it too. You know, it's it's a very unique you know uh, sensation. Absolutely, authenticity and, and tradition is cumulative, and it's very very personal. So, what is uh, authentic to you could not. It's probably not authentic to somebody else, but it it's your tradition. And I'm, I'm imploring people to, to create their own traditions as long as they understand the backstory. And if you're in L.A., when our restaurants are opening again, you must check out Felix in Venice. Now, do you want to say anything about, and not to put you on the spot, but do you want to talk a little bit about the restaurant industry right now? Is there anything that we can be doing? Uh, you know, because you are the core, you know, this is small business for, you know, so many places like this. You know, we saw like Trump met with like Papa John's and McDonald's to talk about the restaurant business, you know, but there are, that, that's not representative of most no. of the restaurants it, that are in our communities. He's barking up the wrong tree there. Um, those aren't the guys that need the bailout. Those are huge conglomerates, corporations. Um, the, the one thing I will say is that chefs on the whole are extremely adaptable individuals. And they're also extremely creative. So if there was ever a set of people that could assess, adapt, and attack the situation, uh, it would be chefs and restaurant owners and, uh, and restaurant workers. Um, so, so I have a great amount of hope uh, for, for the restaurant industry. It's extraordinarily difficult to make any kind of long-term, uh, long-term decisions right now because everything's so fluid. It's changing day to day. Um, it's stabilizing a little bit, but still, I think that's just because we're getting used to what's going on. Um, but there, you know, it's never going to be the same. Number one, number two, um, we will have to, uh, we will have to adapt. And that's what we've always done. You know, this, this insane duality of, of, being a chef and, and, and owning a restaurant is that you have to be 100% unwavering of your standards and protocols, but be adaptable at any given moment to any situation that presents itself. So we've been doing this um, as an industry uh, for a couple hundred years. And, and this is just a new, this is a new hurdle to overcome. This is a new uh, issue to to problem solve, and that's I think that's what we're doing for the most part. Uh, there, we obviously struggle with the with our responsibilities, just like everybody. But we've been hit extraordinarily hard. But uh, I have great, great hope for the industry. That makes me very happy. I'm glad to hear that, Evan. Yeah, it's so nice talking to you. Remember, the shape of pasta right now on Quibi. Uh, episodes are 10 minutes or less, and you get to travel to all these beautiful places in Italy, talk to these amazing women, learn about all these different pasta varietals. Quibi is now totally for free for the a 90-day trial. So whenever you start it, it'll be free for you for 90 days. And uh, I watch a show on the recommendation of a friend and just kind of fell in love with it. Um, it really it, it is soothing. It is very soothing. You're soothing. The, the camera movement is soothing, and it just makes you want to cook and eat and uh it it's it really is uh the, the best so uh thank you so much for spending some time with us thank you so much and uh i hope everybody has a good time today wherever you are sheltering at home and uh pasta cures a lot so eat pasta i love it be well thanks evan thank you so much guys Thank you, Evan. That was amazing. And now all I want to do is eat pasta. And by the way, 
Uh, I know I talked about it on the thing, but his show is fantastic. Get could be it's it's free right now. Do it. Well, if you still want to eat pasta, you're still not eating it at Henry Hill's house. And now, obviously, you have opinions about this. I, I imagine you enjoyed trying to find negative reviews about uh, Goodfellas. Yeah, I was a little disheartened that I couldn't find more, but I did find one. Okay. Uh, the review that I found comes from Variety Magazine. They called it <clears throat> Simul- simultaneously fascinating and repellent. Goodfellas is Martin Scorsese's colorful but dramatically unsatisfying look at mafia life in 1955 to 1980 New York City. Commercial prospects for the overlong release appear relatively modest. Scorsese's intent here is to show how a life of brutal crime could look compelling to an Irish-American kid whose sordid upbringing hasn't prepared him for anything better, but it's undercut by the off-putting, opaque characterization of Ray Liotta. Sympathy is not the issue here. Empathy is. The second half, however, doesn't develop the dramatic conflicts between the character and the milieu that are hinted at earlier. The effect is simply to keep piling on and intensifying Leota's horrific and ultimately numbing descent into depravity. Sorvino, um, he talks about Sorvino here a bit here. He says, Sorvino's scruples recall those of Martin Marlon Brando and The Godfather, but since Goodfellas doesn't share the Godfather film's examination of the mafia's evolution in reaction to social justice, the conflict has no weight, and Scorsese mis- misguidedly abandons his focus on the mob community to tell the unrewarding story of a lone wolf. The film style in the second half, it turns into a frenetic, feverish mimicry of the wasted-looking Leota's coked-up mental state. All right. Well, there you go. You guys should have a dinner together. You have a very nice time. <laughs> we um, will. And you know what? I won't even pretend that I care that much about how my garlic is sliced. <laughs> um, Amy, uh, is there a Simpsons? There is. The Simpsons that I pulled is from an episode called The Ha Hawed Couple. This is where Bart decides to befriend Nelson, the school bully, and he realizes how life opens up. This is a a bit of a longer clip if you want to watch it in full. I just pulled the bit that's talking because what they're going to do here is Nelson's going to give him a tour of the school and they're going to duplicate the Copacabana entrance. But they stop talking fairly soon on, so I just cut the clip. I wish you weren't a bully. Mm. Sometimes, but it's not up to me. It's who I am. I mean, a shark can't stop swimming or it'll blow up. Man. I never knew you were so deep. Here, this is for you. (gasps) A Nelson vest. The sleeves were torn off by wild dogs. From then on, my life changed. All of a sudden, I was a somebody in a school full of nobodies. I could go anywhere, do anything. For us, to live any other way was nuts. And then they turn to the whole cafeteria. You see crab apples smoking in the back. You see uh, guys smuggling in answer keys. And then they whirl through the cafeteria. And then they get a table right at front. It's beautiful. I love that. Uh, that's so great. I mean, it's been really fun talking to you about this film. Um, I've been looking forward to it. And I really thought I was going to be incredibly swayed. And I think distance from this movie really made me appreciate it so much more. Uh, and I still, uh, you know, I, as always, value your take on uh, on it all. Uh, and one of our more contentious episodes of the podcast, uh, we very, <laughs> very rarely do we disagree this hard uh, on a on a film. Um, yeah. And uh, and I think maybe the other time was Godfather too. Yeah. So uh, so there you go. Um, That's fitting because can I tell you why my theory as to why Goodfellas is so elevated in the world? 
And, I, and, I, and also my theory, you know, I'll tie this in. And my theory of criticism, I, if, if, if this episode has made anybody out there love this movie more, that is fantastic. Because what we're doing here, right? We're sharing, we're right. tugging at different ideas. And if tugging at an idea makes it stronger in your book, which I think you're arguing about why Lorraine has, has her narration is important, effective, great argument. Um, all beautiful, all beautiful. We're just pumping up our own muscles here. But my theory as to why Goodfellas is treasured as much as it is and why I do think it deserves to be questioned much harder is because when it comes out in 1990, that is also the year of The Godfather Part Three, and it's the year of My Blue Heaven, and it's the year of The Freshman with Marlon Brando. And I think this movie comes out in a time when there's a bunch of movies that are slightly more sacrilegious about what the mafia means. And because this movie took it most seriously and was the most gory and real, I think it did get bumped up a bit in comparison and raised in our cultural evolu- evolu- evaluation. And I think it could just be lowered a little bit. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. So, I mean, let's talk about next week. We've been doing these unspooled spool parties, which are kind of celebrating cultural hits, movies that we just love from big to clueless. And we actually celebrated the house party 30th anniversary last week, live on YouTube with uh, Reggie Hudland and uh, uh, Christopher Kid Reed, which was super fun. He uh, is a big fan of yours. <laughs> Don't make me blush. Uh, and uh, we thought it'd be fun to actually release one of those episodes because it actually ties in to Goodfellas in a more than um, one way. Um, the first way is it's released the same year. So this is a movie that comes out the same year uh, as Goodfellas. But more importantly, um, both movies talk about getting a beating. And there is a, uh, there is a, in both films, they just basically talk about if you're going to get a beat down, you're going to get a beat down. It's pretty much like, I knew I'm going to get a beating, so I'll just get a beating. Like, and I, and I feel like, so there's a similarity to the idea of just taking your beating when you get it. Doesn't make a difference how late you were out or who you lied to or how you skipped school. Sometimes you just got to take a beating. (laughs) That's a wow, real way of looking at the world. (laughs) <laughs> well, it was so funny when 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 it came on and he was talking about taking a beating. I was like, oh, we just heard this in House Party. Uh, <laughs> so um, next week we'll be airing that here on the podcast. But um, we'll be also doing a live uh, unspooled spool party next week for the film Clue. It will be a real murder mystery uh, unspooled live on YouTube. And that will be 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5.30 p.m. Pacific Time, live on YouTube on the Earwolf channel. So definitely check out Unspooled, <laughs> Unspooled, talking about Clue, and maybe, just maybe, there will be a murder. <gasps> I hope it's not me. I hope nobody kills me now. I'm, I'm me, me either. I mean, what I do. <laughs> Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. 
At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.